tip today in association with Slattery's of Pecan, your main Peugeot dealer for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Morning, welcome along to Tip Today, 1800 938 007. That's our free phone number. It won't cost you to make a call. Emma is producing today. Coming up on the show this morning, we'll speak to the Tornish Jimmy Hall Martin from the Fianna Fáil Thinking at the Horse and Jockey Hotel in just a few moments' time. Our listeners react to assorted topics uh, this morning. Uh, we'll pose the question, should school uniforms be scrapped? I'll be speaking to journalist Jane Hogan on that. Ali will be broadcasting from Rockwell College this morning morning on what is a very important event indeed for the college. Our agony aunt, uh, Phil, will be with you to solve some of your dilemmas. And we have legal matters with John Lynch from Lynch Solicitors. So all of that and much, much more on the way. You can text him WhatsApp 083 311 You can email tiptoday at tipfm.com. Now it's day two of the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party Thinking at the Horse and Jockey Hotel, the annual event intended to help set priority issues for the party. I'm glad to be joined now by the Tornishta and Fianna Fáil leader, Michal Martin. Good morning to you, Tornishta. Good morning. And thanks very much indeed for your time this morning and welcome to Tipperary. Why Tipperary, by the way? Well, I think Jackie Cahill uh, had come to me um, over nine months ago and um, he was very anxious that we uh, would host the parliamentary party meeting here in Tipperary and particularly in the horse and jockey. Um, and, um, you know, I've been with Jackie on a number of occasions, as you know, in, in Tipperary on a range of issues. Um, and at the time, I, I think he felt it was important that we would come to the heart uh, of Munster, um, and in particular to Tipperary. And uh, I thought it was a good, a good idea, and we decided we'd do that. Uh, we have a strong team here in terms of local councillors um, and also in terms of uh, the party. Uh, and um, so I, I think it's a good choice and it's turned out to be an excellent venue um, uh, on all fronts and so we're very happy with the operation and, and, and the, the the facilities here um, at the Horse and Jockey in, 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 in Tipperary. The possible changes in the constituencies to three-seaters now for uh, Tipperary, that will give Jackie some uh, added challenges, I suppose. Well, there's, ups, there's pluses and minuses. It will be challenging uh to win a seat in any three-seater in, in a modern political context. That said, I think he's, he, he's, he's worked extremely hard, worked very hard, very committed. Um, and as a chairman of the Agricultural Committee, he's particularly strong. Um, so I, I think he'll be, he'll, he'll, he'll be very competitive in this constituency. Uh, and it's, it's his heartland as well in terms of the area that he represents um, and, and, and historically has come from. Uh, so I think Jackie will be strong here. It will be competitive, but he has a very strong team behind him. You'd have to look to South Tipperary as well then for a candidate. Would you have to take <coughs> a gender balance into account there? Would it be a woman? Um, it could very well be, and I think we have uh, a good team also um, in, in, in uh, Tipperary South, and there'll be quite a number of candidates coming forward there. Um, and, um, you know, we will 
obviously hold a convention and we consult with the local organisation, but we have a very strong councillor team here in South Tip, uh, and that, I think, will give us options to compete competitively for a season in, 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 Tipperary, in the new Tipperary South. You had a busy day yesterday, for sure. One of the headlines emerging, Tornister, from yesterday is your comments that the media needs to stop cheerleading Sinn Féin as if their success in the next general election is a fait accompli. However, the, the polls appear to be indicating that that may be a possibility. Do you need to take a little bit of care because the maths might have your party sharing a future government with them or is this something you want to completely rule out? Well, the point I was making yesterday is that we live in a multi-seas proportional representation electoral system um, which basically means we have a fragmented parliament and we will after the next election. So there are a wide range of options that could lead to a formation of the next government. Uh, but the, all of the commentary and the questions that we get asked is just one. Uh, will, will Fianna Fáil go in with Sinn Féin as if that's already preordained and that's the outcome, which I think is not the case. Basic point it was making. Same thing happened in 2016 uh, and the pundits got it all wrong then uh, in terms of completely misreading the outcome of that election. Um, and I simply say elections are not coronations. Uh, elections have to be fought for. Uh, and because of the multi-seat system we have, um, there will be a range of parties elected um, plus independents. Uh, a variety of coalition formations can happen. We will focus on policy. Uh, we believe Sinn Féin are anti-Europe. We believe they're anti-enterprise. Uh, they have a very um, incoherent view on climate. And we believe uh, their performance over the last three years have been very op- opportunistic in opposition. They have opposed schemes like Help to Buy, First Home, which help young uh, people to get on the housing ladder uh, and to afford housing. They've been very much against those policies. Uh, so their policy platform is incompatible with ours. We will stand in the election based on our policies. We'll seek the maximum number of votes based on our policies. And then uh, we will seek like-minded parties uh, to form a government with, but that will very much depend on the outcome of the election and how people vote. But you're not ruling it out, even though you have profound difficulties with Sinn Féin, as as you outlined there. Well, uh, what I'm saying is that we're going to campaign positively on our platform, um, and we will seek then partners after the election to form a government with who would share or be closer to the policy priorities um, that we have. And given Sinn Féin's record in Europe, uh, given its record on enterprise more generally, uh, I believe um, that, that, that our policy positions are incompatible at the moment. The, Pat Leahy is writing in the Times today, I'm not sure if you had a chance to have a look at it, but he, he's pointing out that Fianna Fáil, you have a youth problem. I mean, essentially the party support is concentrated among older voters, Tanish. Do you need to sort of, I don't know, grab hold of that younger vote that Sinn Féin appears to have? We do need to work more on that, although we have the youngest TD in um, Leinster House. Uh, I think there are a number of approaches there. Housing is obviously a key issue. Uh, We've invested strongly in education and higher education, and we've reduced fees. um, And we've also um, significantly uh, improved and broadened access to, 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 uh, to education more generally and to healthcare facilities. But also, I think we need to run more younger candidates and give opportunities to younger people to stand for the party, which we will do in the forthcoming local elections. And already we're having significant success in candidates coming forward, um, younger candidates coming forward, which in its own way will, uh, I think, help to attract a younger vote. Uh, And in addition to that, we need to uh, have more women running for the party also in the forthcoming uh, local elections and European elections also. Many people, though, feeling shut out of the 
property market young people and they despair over the notion of even affording their own home and I sort of have skin in the game here myself Tonishta because my own son he's 25 and he's breaking our hearts uh, by uh, telling us that he, he's leaving for Australia uh, next month even though he has a very good job here but to see a future in terms of home, home ownership and the like he can't see that and I'm sure he's like many many more out there what what kind of an indictment is that on the present government? I think the, the present government was there for three years and we had COVID-19 for a year and a half of that which did impact on house building but we have brought in a variety of schemes to help young people in that position to buy houses. The first home scheme is one which as I say was opposed by the opposition which allows for some equity by the state to try and reduce the level of mortgage that a person would have to secure. We have the help to buy scheme which provides substantial supports. We now have brought in schemes whereby you can get up to 50,000 for a vacant house in terms of refurbishment and 70,000 for a derelict house in, in, and particularly in towns and villages across the country that would be very useful and then we have affordable uh, schemes as well to, to via the local authorities to try and uh, provide housing that would be affordable for young people and then we have the cost rental schemes also um, that allow for uh, mm. better models which the rents would be uh, cheaper than the market rent uh, now it takes time to ramp up new schemes or new initiatives like well, that's the point I was going to make it's all just much too slow isn't it and in the meantime we have an exodus of young people particularly I notice from around our area in West Tipperary an exodus of people leaving even though they have jobs here well like we have full employment here um, there's been an extraordinary increase in employment post-Covid in the country uh, and that continues um, but and I acknowledge there's a, there's a reach challenge on the housing fund. We did 30,000 houses completed last year. Uh, we need to increase upon that. I think we've exceeded our targets that we're in housing for all, but the population is growing dramatically. Um, and there's more people coming into the country than leaving the country. Um, and that's creating challenges on the housing front. But I think we have to be consistent and maintain investment in housing over the next number of years to really make sure that people get that opportunity, young people in particular, to be able to afford to buy a house. That is the number one policy priority on the social front. Of that, there is no doubt. The media homing in on the IFA protest outside of uh, the hotel. Farmers definitely have the view, and we heard, we heard from uh, Mr. Cullinan yesterday here, live on the programme, live from the Horse and Doggy, but it certainly has the view that the derogation suits the government's agenda as uh, it reduces <coughs> count numbers by the back door. Now, I know you disagree with this, but the fact is that the Minister relied on a Zoom call to make the case for its retention. That really feeds into that view. I mean, it, it, was, a, it was a watery uh, way to try and do something for farmers here, was it not? Ah, that's not a fair assessment of it at all. I mean, the minister successfully negotiated a derogation um, in 2022 uh, to last until 2025, uh, the most generous derogation across the European Union, rightly so because of our particular uh, circumstances. Um, but built into that derogation for Ireland was that if water quality did not improve, there would be uh, an automatic reduction from 250 kilos per hectare to 220 um, per hectare. And that's what has happened. Now, that does put pressure on farmers. Um, and the commissioner was not for turning um, in that respect because he didn't want to go back negotiating with 27 other member states um, in the middle of the derogation period. To me, I think we have to work now to see what we can do to alleviate pressures on farmers who are affected by this decision. But we also have to double down collectively and work with farmers who have been constructive. And I met with the IFA yesterday, and the minister has met with the IFA with me, and he's met with the ICMSA and other organisations. We have to work together on the water quality issue, but more in a more focused way to make sure 
that when it comes to 2025 in the negotiations mm. that we retain but the I, 220 I, I'm no uh, kilograms per hectare. I, That's the most important thing, yes. I think. That, and I'm no, of that. I'm no farmer, Tonish, but I mean, there were attempts by farmers and a lot of investment by farmers to do something about this, but there simply wasn't enough time for it <coughs> to come to fruition in some way. Is that not the case? Well, we have we have and we continue to provide capital allowances um, to help um, farmers with greater storage capacity. Um, the, 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 the derogation originally was very clear in terms of the need for improvement. Uh, I've, farmers have made the point to me that um, it'll take a bit longer um, for trends in improvement to manifest themselves. Um, but in the context of the derogation that was given by the Commission, um, they wanted to see improvement and the recent EPA report of June showed a deterioration in some areas in respect of water qualities. Now, that's an issue we can't um, mm. ignore. Uh, I think, to be fair to those farmers so in derogation... That's blaming just farmers. Out, that's blaming no, farmers, though. No, sorry, sorry, it's not blaming farmers. Just let me finish the point. The farmers in derogation have met many of their... and have additional obligations and have met them. And I've, I have a significant degree of, of, of sympathy and concern for those farmers because they're working flat out to meet the criteria of the derogation. But I think we need a broader approach, not just for those in derogation, but outside of derogation as well, to make sure that we collectively work together to do what it takes to improve the water quality, retain the derogation that we have, and if in 2025 the water improves significantly, can we restore it to where it was? I mean, that has to be the agenda, and we have to be strategic about it and very focused about it now in the remaining time to 2025 yeah. to make sure we keep that 220. And I have to stress that. I mean, we are, we, I'd say by then we'll be only one of two countries in Europe that will have a derogation. Um, the Dutch one is expiring. Um, and that's the context we're operating within. Right, but it, um, it, could, it could easily be lower by the time it gets to, to 2026, depending on what happens. As well. Jackie Cahill is of the opinion, and he's indicated that some proper compensation is required now uh, for farmers. Would you go along with that? Well, I mean, I think the issue we need to do is how can we support? I use the, I use the phrase supports in terms of compensation um, for farmers in terms of, of dealing with this particular problem and see can we do, are the mechanisms we can devise that would enable farmers to retain what they have in terms of herd numbers and so on. Uh, but that's, that will be challenging, but I think we have to work on that immediately. Right. And just in terms of appease, I'm just thinking the ploughing championships are next uh, week. If farmers are not appeased. I mean, there's going to be it's going to be very big challenges for you there at the ploughing championships, do you not think? Well, I think the ploughing championships are an opportunity to showcase um, Irish agriculture, Irish food production uh, and rural Ireland. And it's been a tremendous showcase on an annual basis, mm. which I think in its own way has helped to uh, shape a policy um, in terms of supporting mm. and being affirmative in terms of rural but life. But also a platform for protest. Food production system. Also a platform but I think, for yeah, protest. But I mean, that, look, we live in a democracy. People are entitled to protest. I have no issue with that. And we met with many farmers yesterday and we had constructive engagement. And it wasn't just a meeting with the executive. I met groups of farmers who stayed in the hotel last evening and, uh, and I met them. And we had chats with small groups of farmers. And their sincerity is, 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 is mm. to be commended. Um, but they're, they're very cross. They're, they're, they're very they're, cross, they're, Tony, Their yeah. desire to try and work through this is, is there. But equally, they also, I think, are real, realistic enough to know um, that the commission, and this is an environment commissioner, was very adamant in terms of the water quality issue, but also in terms of the difficulty in reopening 
with 27 other member states uh, to try and seek a further derogation for Ireland midway through this derogation period uh, is something that wasn't uh, on the agenda of the Commissioner or the Commission. And to, to me... Mm. We just really have to focus on 2025 to make sure we keep the 220. All all the more reason why um, Minister McConnell should have got on an aeroplane, would you not think, and gone and sort of... But he has been, you see. This this didn't come overnight. I mean, I think the writing was on the wall when the June data came out from the Environmental Protection Agency Mm. in respect of... So uh, he had given up on it. He had given up on it essentially. Then he just did the Zoom call, and that was it. Was that? No, no, no. He had met him before the Zoom call. He meets Mm. he meets the commissioner every month. Uh, He the minister negotiated this. Mm. You know, the the, the negotiation in itself was success, given what's happening other countries and other systems. Mm -hmm. Um, Farmers would disagree with you on that. Can I just? just, I'm conscious of your time, but just a couple of other things that's important to the people of Tipperary. Uh, Deputy Matthew McGrath. Um, on this programme, he said that the decision to restore excise on uh, diesel and petrol, along with the return of the 13.5% VAT for hospitality, will have huge consequences. He went on to say that the state could afford to hold off on the excise increases, but the government don't care. He said, you've lost any sense of moral compass with regarding uh, people's uh, suffering. Well, we allocated £12 billion last year in cost of living measures. The highest ever, I'd say ever. Uh, I don't know any, how anybody can say that that equates to people not caring. Uh, I mean, we did a whole range of interventions um, right across the board from energy credits um, to reducing cost of services and health and education. Uh, this September is the first September ever that primary school books are free. Uh, we brought an armor fully introduced that initiative and Fianna Fáil are very uh, you know, pleased with that, that we managed to get the resources to do that. Um, and uh, we, we, you know, we've reduced childcare costs by about 25%. We reduced public transport yes. fares for young people with a 50% reduction. And specifically with diesel and petrol. But specifically with diesel and petrol, if yeah, you but would. It's, it's all about the cost of living. Inpatient hospital charges have been abolished. Mm. We've extended free GP care to another 215,000 people yesterday. Uh, I mean, that's all good. Uh, in respect of helping people, and we've re- we've we've reduced, uh, we've given an additional subsidy for rent. Now, on the VAT and on the energy, I mean, the VAT would amount to about nearly 700 million, uh, and we have to work out the best way. That was always a temporary measure, both during COVID and during the war and and, and the energy crisis, uh, and it's simply been restored to where it was. Um, and th- there's a balance uh, has to be adopted here in terms of the um, the fuel and so forth. The energy subsidies were never going to be permanent. Uh, there, we will look at it in terms of the final phase of, 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 of elimination of subsidy in the context of the budget. But we'll also look at how can we help people in the budget and in an associated cost of living package to reduce pressure on people in terms of costs, particularly the cost of public services. Uh, and we've done a whole range of, 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 of measures in health and education and so forth, um, and particularly for young people in terms of public transport, in terms of uh, schooling, reducing fees and so on, and free contraception now available for 17 to 13-year-olds also. Um, so I think it's in the round we're going to have to identify in the budget and the cost of living package further measures to try and reduce the pressure. Right. And what, what sort of measures are we talking about there? I mean, can you you talk to us about the USC because much speculation about cuts in that, for example. Well, again, the minister will specify that in the budget, but we are looking at income tax and USC to see what's the most effective way, to, again, to reduce pressure. And electricity people, credits? To give, people, to give people breathing space yes. in the context of an inflation that is stubborn, it is coming down, and it's, it's anticipated to go down further for the remainder of this year and certainly into 2024. Um, we will be looking at uh, the energy area, uh, and we'll be trying to identify what's the most effective way 
um, to reduce costs on people in, as they go about their daily lives. Right, as I say, I mean, I, I wouldn't underestimate, I think the free primary book scheme is an excellent initiative that will help families in particular. The childcare reduction costs will help families very right. significantly. Will, will we see some have. of those electricity credits again, the 200 euros? We may. But I can't, you know, I'm not going to get into specifics here because this isn't right. budgeted. But, but, um, but that's that's a possibility, is it? It's C- a possibility. Can I ask you about two other things? And again, just if I can get a little parochial at the moment, but the Gardaí currently undergoing uh, a major change programme as part of this, the Garda Divisions of Clare and Tipperary now being amalgamated into one under one chief superintendent with the divisional office based in Ennis Garda st- stations. Now, our listeners just can't get their head around this. I don't have to tell you, Tipperary is a huge, huge county and the idea of directing leasing in Tipperary from Ennis just seems ridiculous to everybody. Yeah, I mean, again, the, the, the yeah, there's been a fundamental reform. It's part of the policing service for our future uh, that there would be a new Garda operating model. Uh, and there was a four-year implementation plan. This happened uh, some years ago. The Commission on the Future of Policing in Ireland recommended this. Um, and in, in other words, change to the structures of Angarda Shikana to provide for more frontline Garda to increase Garda visibility uh, and a wider range of policing services for people in their local area. Each division will... But it, it now seems we have... Crime, I beg your pardon, Tony, but it, 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 it now seems as if we'll have even less services because resources is so scarce. But can you see any logic in policing Tipperary for menace? It's not going to be police for menace. I mean, there will be obviously clearly uh, policing on the ground and, and, and management structures on the ground within Tipperary itself. I mean, uh, prior to the formation of the new division, Garda numbers in, in, in the former Tipperary division increased by 8%. Um, and we want to increase Garda uh, visibility and, and, and presence on the ground even more um, and we're going to do that over the next number of years uh, in terms of recruitment and so on. COVID did hit um, training in Templemore for a period. Right, but um, we're, we're hearing from the GRA for example, you know, that redeployment from drug squads, from community policing, all of that, possibly the loss of the um, the response unit from care and all of this kind of thing as well and now the GRA voting on a, a motion of no confidence in their Garda Commission will have results of that uh, over the next 24 hours as well. I mean, it does reflect a lack of confidence in, in the police force at the, at the moment. And there's much talk of it here in the Premier County. I hope it's being reflected at your thinking. Yes, and um, the issue with, like, the operation of the Garda is a matter for the Garda Commissioner. Uh, we do not interfere in the operational model or uh, in terms of the management of Angarda Shikana. But, that's, but that's, maybe, maybe uh, the Minister a, needs to do that. Maybe no, you can't have political interference. Uh, but surely in, there's in, direction in, from in the in department. Is there, is there not uh, direction see, from the department? Yeah, but listen, and there was a policing service for a future. There was a fundamental review of Angarda Shikana that took place four years ago hmm. uh, to modernise the force. Right. And but, what you're now witnessing is the rollout of that. Yes, but but um, the rank and, and file, the rank and file to, don't believe in that. Oh yeah, but fine. But just I'm going to make the point here. You you cannot have a situation. I would argue. Certainly, there can be policy direction, and we want more Gardaí on the ground. We want to resource Gardaí more, um, and, and we're going to do that. Uh, but what what you cannot have is every second year. Uh, ministers making, sorry, getting, we, 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 wading in and, and, and making operational changes. I don't think that would be coherent or in the long-term interest. I also believe that the Representative Association has legitimate issues to work out in terms of industrial relations and to try and improve the quality of life of Gardaí. I, I would stop short, though, of the idea that in the industrial relations context we have votes of confidence because I think we have to have proper recruiting 
procedures for senior management in Agarda Shikona. There has to be proper criteria by which people um, are recruited mm. and retained in office, and not just by a ballot. Right, I, I just if, don't think that makes that, if, that is the best way. If, if you can't interfere just as an observer, I mean, how can the commissioner survive the fact that the rank and file don't believe that he's the right man in the job? I think the commissioner has been appointed in line with a proper recruitment process um, and right. um, th- 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 and th- th- that will remain the case in terms of future commissioners as well um, and it can never be uh, on the basis of a ballot in an, in, particularly in the context of, the, of a dispute around industrial relations. Right, just finally can I ask you about health because I mean consistently awful trolley numbers where University Hospital Limerick is concerned, the worst performing hospital in the country for almost 14 years now. I mean the, the reconfiguration of the emergency services, down, it, it just hasn't worked that whole concept there in University Hospital Limerick, it just hasn't worked sure it hasn't? Well I think Again, in, 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 I, I dispute some of that. I think in emergency care, it's been very challenging and it isn't where it should be. I'd accept Chaotic that. Chaotic disasters. Just, well, well, just, just hear me out a second. I, I'm just indicating what our listeners are saying. Know, about. But you, yeah. yeah, but you, you might let me answer and sure, make the point. Sure. The health services overall, by the way, have improved very generally. Um, and um, staff in, 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 in South Tiberi General Hospital, for example, is up um, to 1,108 now. Uh, that's it was in July of this year compared to 868 at the end of 2019. So we've increased people, number of staff and so on like that. The broader health outcomes in people in the country is much better in terms of cardiovascular health, in terms of outcomes from cancer, stroke and so on. That never gets commented on when we talk about health. The broader successes in terms of people so doing better. We're, we're, we're too, and, I beg your pardon so for, 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 for cutting mm-hmm. water, but we're, we're too busy hearing about people dying on trolleys and people with most unfortunate experiences on trolleys. I don't, they're not acceptable that people have bad experiences on trolleys, but that is not the full story of the Irish Healthcare Service. That's the point. And with greatest respect, you do have a responsibility equally to highlight the fact that in terms of outcomes in Ireland, they're far better now than they were 10 years ago in terms of most serious diseases in Ireland, uh, our health service and the interventions that happened at primary care, that happened at, tertiary, that at hospital levels and at community care, the outcomes are better. Um, no, we still need to do better. And I take your point on the um, emergency centre in Limerick. Um, that's not where it should be, and that's why we're putting in significantly increased capacity. Um, and it's the clinical governance issue. Clinic, clinicians led the reforms in terms of where's the best place to get urgent and emergency care. Um, and it was their view over the years that what we had was not was suboptimal in terms of the outcomes, that sending people to a particular hospital um, didn't necessarily mean if they didn't have the necessary resources or capacity, and that's why they developed the reconfiguration as you described right. it, but, but, in but terms it ha- trying to get better outcomes. But it hasn't worked. And in, fer- injury. in fairness, the health minister last uh, year on this programme just admitted that straight out, that it just it just hasn't worked. Just before I let you go... But we need uh, more capacity in the hospital. Like we accept that. Uh, and, and a lot more capacity indeed. CAMS, can I ask you about that, particularly uh, where North Tipperary is concerned, they're part of that uh, Limerick and Clare uh, configuration there... Uh, 24 areas of concern. I mean, really, you know? I mean, that's as bad as it gets, isn't it? Well, I think in terms of mental health services more generally, there's the CAMS, which accounts for about 2% of those who attend. Um, and yes, we, we, that needs to be uh, improved without, that, without a question. Recruitment is a big issue in terms of uh, CAMS. Um, and in, 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 in meanwhile, then, we have um, increased resources for a whole range of 
um, organisations within the mental health area to um, help young people more generally in terms of mental health challenges. But there is increased investment on an ongoing basis going into CAMS. One of the challenges has been the recruitment of a sufficient number of psychiatrists in particular um, to staff CAM uh, centres across the country. Right, yeah, but, but, but unfortunately, the, the, I mean, the result of that is that our young people are suffering greatly and some of them dying. And, you know, I mean, it's... Again, we hear stories on this programme all of the time about uh, the challenges that young people have, uh, Tornister, you know. Yes, and, and, and in terms of... But, but, but there's also... Look, I mean, it, it, it's one would... Uh, look, in terms of health more generally and in terms of young mm. people in the country, there's an awful lot... Of opportunity being created for young people as well, mm. um, uh, and but I just have to make that point. No, and I, I've been to, to, to education centres in Tipperary, uh, where the quality of, of the education experience for young people is first class. Uh, we have a third class. We, we we have the highest participation in third level education for young people in Europe. We have the highest completion rate in second level education in Europe. So let's not sort of there's there's certainly challenges facing us in public policy. But it's not as if it's entirely a grim and bleak story as you are articulating. Uh, there's a lot of positives in Irish life today. Uh, and, um, and that's uh, testified by international uh, indices and observations um, about uh, the quality of life in Ireland <clears throat> compared to other uh, countries and indeed European countries and, and others. But that doesn't take away from the necessity to improve our services and our public services and unprecedented resources are going into them. There have been recruitment and retention issues in CAMS and other areas um, and that's in many respects because we have full employment in the country um, which I can recall when I was a young person you know we, we had massive unemployment and you must remember that as well sure. uh, when opportunities were very very uh, hard to come by uh, but we have newer challenges today uh, and I think those newer challenges <clears throat> particularly in the area of mental health need perhaps um, a broader approach and what the Minister for Education has done in terms of bringing uh, um, a pilot program into education in terms of counselling and therapy I think is probably the way to go into the future so that we work on mental health issues with young people at an earlier age uh, and a lot of work has been done in our schools well, in that regard and in terms of community mental health also you know organisations like Jigsaw, Pieta House and so on are being resourced again to, to help um, young people who definitely need assistance in terms of mental health uh, and then in terms of CAMS, it, the recruitment has been the biggest challenge. Well, when I say goodbye to my son in Dublin <coughs> Airport in uh, October, I'll try and keep those positives in mind, uh, Tony. So thank you so much well, for I, your I, time I, this I, I, Look, I, I appreciate the particular issue for, your, for yourself and your family, and that's not something that anybody, you know, on a personal level uh, can be happy with, uh, and I appreciate that. But on the broader level, you know, there are opportunities in Ireland as well. Thanks for your time this morning, Tony. Thank, Thank you. you. Good, good Thank morning you. to you. That is Tony Jimmy Hall Martin speaking to us from um, from the Horse and Jockey Hotel this morning. Eighteen hundred nine three eight double zero seven. Tip today with Fran Curry with Slattery's Garage. Puck on! You can't beat experience. With over fifty years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. Oh six seven two four one 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 or slatterysgarage.ie. Now, yesterday we heard from the IFA president uh, Tim Cullinan and indeed some farmers on that uh, protest at the Fianna Fáil. I think in uh, they were airing. Their frustrations over the cuts in the nitrates um, limits. So William was in touch to share his views, and he joins me now. William, good morning to you. 
morning, Fran. Uh, good to talk to you today. Um, you think the Minister has failed, William. Is that a summation of your, your thoughts? It is. I, I think on every aspect of agriculture that we've needed the Minister to fight for us, he has come out second best in all battles. Um, um, I remember saying years ago, I thought Michael Creed was a very poor Minister of Agriculture, but I didn't think he could be beaten, but he has been beaten. And, be- and, and you know, it's regrettably on a farming point of view that you have to say that but our minister has been way off on like you look at the new um he done a zoom call to that's the final decision on um the derogation yes um the nitrates would say there was the the, the um get the uh, the figure with the emissions going from 30% was what agreed, and he comes back and he said, I've agreed at 25 Now, to me, that's just a small little token, uh, but he'll given in. He, he, he's not any fight that people are asking him to fight. He's just not able to fight it. He seems to be a yes man, or he seems to be backing on the green battle, but he's just on a, on a Fianna Fáil ticket. I, I'm not sure if you got a chance to listen to the tarnished uh, just there a few moments ago we were speaking to him, and he said the Minister has done his best where this is concerned, the Commission not for changing on this, and that, in fact, it was the Minister's um, uh, negotiation skills that has kept it at 220, in fact, where all the countries are down as far as 170. And what, what do you say to that, William? No, I'd say, he, I, I'd say the first of all thing, and I think it has been pointed out by the IFA, and it's also been pointed out by yourselves as well, that these rules that are being brought in, that were brought in back over the last two years or even the last 12 months, they haven't got even time to bed it in to get accurate figures to know how they have worked. Mm. So how you could come out and say, I've done the best deal possible, and you go from 250 down to uh, 220, he's lost 30 kilos. Uh, 30 kilos is a massive giveaway. Like for for most farmers, they could be looking and saying, "Go look at 10 to 15 cows to balance those figures right. if they're in dairy." Yeah, to non-farmers, give us a clue about that because my understanding is that, say, in an acre, to be down one cow, for example, is that is that fair to say? Is that is that? A... Yeah, yeah, that was the old, the old, um, the old reckon. You could probably be nearer to two cows uh, to the acre more than one. Yes. Um, you know, you're in maybe 1.6, 1.7, or in around that bracket. You know, we've dropped 30 kilos, and the one time I've seen that the water quality in Ireland has decre- has 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 uh, decreased is since that we've went farming by calendar. That we're all spreading slowly the 15th of January, yeah. or in certain areas. So the big volume of stuff is all going out for the one length of time, instead of farming by the calendar, where you could have you could have 10 good days in December, or you could have 10 good days, you know, the end of December, early January, that you could go out. It could be absolutely, you've got thunderstorms on the 15th of January, but you can spread away. So, you know, the European Commission seems to be dictating and the, the states seem to be agreeing and say yes or how many more... And are you saying it doesn't make sense on the ground, William? Is that is that no, the point you're making? No, that's the point we're making, that it's uh, farming by the calendar is, 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 is nonsensical. Um, that, you know... People that are the people that are mining the land are the people that are mm. are farming it, and they're the ones that will make the best calls on the land because they don't want to go out ploughing up their fields. Are but, you are you a member of IFA? I am, yes. Yes, okay. And it, it appears to me, and again, I always have to put my hand up here and say I'm not a farmer, William. But it appears to me the farmers are more divided than ever and I'm particularly harking back to last week to the meeting outside of the department where you know it it, it grew very ugly indeed with uh, IFA members shouting at ICMSA and calling them scabs and and the like as well more, more divided than ever would you think more divided than ever would be a very fair assessment they have never been they have never been together in my opinion for as long as 
as long as I can remember, I've never seen the IFA and the ICMSA working together. They've always been working off their own bat and yeah. I suppose trying to claim maybe browning pints maybe for, for all their members, but instead of working for the greater interest of the of, of the farming community, they all have always been divided. They've never been they've never been singing off the one hymn sheet. Right, but never as I never as bad as this, I would say. No, no, I don't think it was ever bad. And you could see both points of view in a way that where one people wanted to come in and, and um, you know, they wanted to make their point and the other people yeah. were just sick of, of sick of arguing that they just wanted to, to uh, just say enough is enough. And, yeah, you can say, do you sit in at the table and fight? But um, the other side just says, no, many more times have I to beat the message, message down to this person and he does not seem to be listening. Well, what about payments? What What is the current situation there, William? Are you, you'll be waiting, it looks like. It looks like we'll be waiting, but the other side of the thing, which has been nice and quietly kept uh, kept quiet, is that most of our single farm payments have been nearly cut by one third. One third to, to uh, from a quarter to one third of our single farm payments, they're now gone into, uh, I suppose, making more money available for greening issues. But our single farm payments, I don't have a big single farm payment. It was a very modest uh, single farm payment. And um, it, it's gone down by almost a third. And I, I don't know where we're heading with this uh, with this minister, but um, just everything comes out is, is, is another nail being put into the, I'll call it, to the small to the middle farmer. They're absolutely hammering them to death. We're, we're going to see factory farms in years to come. And do you see, well, the derogation, for example, does that suit an agenda that might be out there in terms of the reduction of cow numbers by, by the back door in some way? Now, I know that Michal Martin's come out and said that, no, that is not the case, but do you believe that? It is no doubt about it, it is the point, because we've been looking for emissions is to, to go by 30%, and all of a sudden we have 30 kilos taken off of the, the derogation, and to achieve that, um, it is cut your numbers. It's basically simple. There's no point dressing it up any other way. Um, I think the problem is with me, with the people that are making the rules in agriculture are the people that are in collar and ties and suits and they wouldn't know the difference between a, a cow and a heifer if they're put in front of them. Jackie Cahill has indicated that some compensation is required at this point. I'm not sure whether or not Michal Martin, his party leader, goes along with that. Uh, how do you feel about that? Some, some form of compensation? It's, it's compensation for what? One year? But you have, you know, you've got, went in and, and since quotas went in and people have went in and taken out maybe 10, 15, 20-year loans to try and, 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 and do work. And now you will get a compensation for one year. Yeah, I'll, I'd love going into my bank manager and tell them, look, sir, I have a, I have a small bit of money now from this year. And he'll say, how will you manage to pay your loan next year and the year after and the year after? And these are the bottom facts. That they're, they've hit the farmer's income uh, over, this is over a number of years. And uh, as true as I'm talking to you now, friend, that it's now 220. When it comes to 225, when the negotiations start again, we'll be at 200 euros for, uh, kilos for, for derogation because they'll say, oh, water quality has improved and we have to slice it again. And the science around that, of course, is debatable as well, isn't it? Yeah, the science is, as I said earlier, is we're now farming by by a calendar and, and not by the sky. Where Where is it all going to end, do you think, William? I mean, are you particularly pessimistic about this? No, I'm not. I'm. I'm uh, every day I get up now. I'm. I'm a kind of saying, how long more have I to stay working in this industry? It, it really is. And I'm 53. Um, you would really be thinking, no, how long more have I left in this industry? If there's a retirement scheme in the morning, I would take it and get the hell over because 
is just absolutely sickening to be putting up from every we have it's all negativity there's people slicing your income every time and you have no say in, in anything it's, it's absolutely stressful. and i presume you come from a generation of farmers do you yeah and, and it will be i know i am we have no family coming behind us so it will be someone else will be farming in years to come and uh, good, good luck to him in, in a way. I can't does, that sad, does that sadden you, William? I mean, I'm, it does. I'm, I'm sad to hear you saying that, for instance. You know, you yeah, can't wait to is, get out of it, yeah? No, I couldn't wait to get out of it. I'm just literally, just literally at my wit end with it now. And every time you look at your, you look at what's coming down the road, it's just another, another lot of bureaucracy. And Ireland has been the best country in the world for to uh, make red tape and make sure red tape is adhered to. Um, you know, we're we're there's a lot of rules come in by from Europe, but we don't seem to have any uh, we don't seem any mechanism coming from from our our, our headman, which is our minister, and trying to fight these uh, things is like he said there was no turning, and the commissioners what the tarnished have said today. Yeah. Um, I, I'm sorry, but if you get your 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 ducks in a row, well. Get them sitting on the wall properly, and and, and not just having them on the edge. Because this minister seems to be quite happy to see the ducks fall in one by one. And um, it definitely suits the green agenda for the emissions now to be to be uh, to be sliced. It definitely suits them. What's going to happen? Do you think at the ploughing championships next week? Um, like, will, will this uh, anger be reflected there as well? Do you think, or will farmers be appeased in some way in the meantime? Uh, look, unless they come out of the miracle thing, yeah. people will. Look, farmers are going to be farmers are very angry at the moment um, with all the with all the what's going on. Um, yeah, I'd say they'll definitely be making their their uh, their voices heard at the plow matches. But his problem was, is he will the people that you want to listen will they be there? Well, I think it was summed up by um, some coverage in uh, is it the Examiner today where the tarnished. Uh, uh, towards the end of his uh, rebuttal to the farmers yesterday, he was absolutely adamant uh, about the fact that we have to abide by European legislation. And that kind of sums yeah. up what you're saying, really, doesn't it? It does. It does. That is, it's just rules have been made out. We have no, we're not fighting the mechanisms that are coming up. Like, when all those reduce, the, the, the reduce your emissions now by 25%, uh, you have until 2025, or then they'll cut them again or whatever... 2030, whatever the year they have picked out, but they'll slice that again. Like there is nothing put in place um, to to show that we can re, well, by reducing the emissions that this is going that this is, is, is it's going to um, it's going to work out fully. There is nothing in the science saying that by by the time this limit is up that this has worked. It's just a way of saying right, okay, we'll cut the cow numbers. Yeah, that's going to drop the emissions by X amount. What a total lump of wally. Um, They've come in about calendar. They've come in about. Uh, you, you have more yokes up in the sky now, seeing what the farmers are doing on their land. To be more underlined, if they started putting more money in in our pockets to keep the people on the land, um, the amount of hours that people put into farming, if that was based down to to uh, what, how much you'd be paid an hour, I tell you, to be to be to be in the very small uh, numbers, it wouldn't be in the the, the minimum wage. I'd say would probably be somewhere around half, if not less than that, of what the minimum wage for the amount of hours you put in for what you get back out. All right, William, I must leave it there, but thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks for coming on with me. Uh, thank thank you, you. Good Good morning to you. 1800 Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie
Welcome back to Tip Today. Now, we didn't get time at the top of the programme to have a look at uh, the headlines. Let's do so now. The Irish Times leading with that story that the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar has clashed with the Northern Ireland Secretary Chris Heaton-Harris over his remarks on the outlook for a united Ireland after talks in Belfast uh, that laid bare sharp divisions indeed over the next steps. Um, for the stalled Stormont executive there as well. And also that story right across the the newspapers today, an Irish female rugby fan in Bordeaux uh, for Ireland's opening match against Romania was allegedly gang-raped in the early hours of Monday morning. Let's have a look at uh, the um, Irish examiner and uh, dominated by a photograph of... Uh, Michal Martin, who we were speaking to just a few moments ago, along along with uh, Charlie McConnell there, and uh, they're facing down a farmer who looks extremely angry in the photograph uh, indeed. And of course, the headline there, Stop Cheerleading Sinn Féin, and we put that to the taunt just a while ago as well. Let's uh, have a look at the Indo and uh, story there, again affecting young people because there's growing pressure for yet another hike in mortgage rates according to the Indo and the Irish Daily Mail uh, telling us that RTE has decided not to publish the names of its 100 highest earners due to the data protection issues and made criticism that it's trying to hide the identities of those on six-figure sums. Willie joins me now. Willie, good morning to you. Good morning, Fran. How are you? I'm very well indeed. Great to talk to you today, uh, Willie. Um, you have some thoughts on uh, farming, with well, a sort of an, al- an alternative view to farming. Well, is that fair to say, Willie? Well, maybe an alternative view, Fran. To, to sorry, is there a bit of feedback there? Yeah. Uh, I, well, we're hearing you. We're hearing you fine here. No problem. Anyway, no, that's fine. Yeah. No, just an alternative view, maybe, Fran, to what seems to be going on over there in Jockey at the moment mm. and the, the, the tirade of angry voices that's coming out of it. I mean, it's hard to fathom some of it. I mean, I'm a farmer myself, an active farmer. Now, I'm not a dairy farmer. We were one time, but we've moved away from that now. But uh, I just find it a bit baffling. Man. In in what I mean, way? All, all these people, you know, oh, God, the, the government are terrible. The minister is terrible. Everything is terrible. The average dairy farm income last year, according to the CSO and various other bodies, was €140,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Hardly, um, <clears throat> they're hardly going broke, Fran, you know, that. That's the av- that was the average. So I realised there's, there's a scale within that. But that was the average farm income last year on dairy farms, €140,000. And, uh, you know, you look at this thing going on in the hearts of jockey and you nearly think that we we're going to have a, a church gate collection for them to... Pockets were falling out. You know, they hadn't nurse left their trousers. Is kind of the, the mentality that's been put but, on. But I mean, are they not? The are they not looking to the future? And the future looks kind of bleak, I suppose. And also, um, uh, the the price of milk has sort of plummeted, has it not? As well, recently, it has. It has indeed, friend. But that was flagged and flagged and flagged. They were this. The, the, there has been a surge, an absolute explosion in cow numbers. Mm transitioning from tillage, transitioning from doctors, transitioning to everything else because they were sold a fantasy that this will never end. It's a never-ending bonanza. It's a never-ending gravy train. Mm. Milk, 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 more cows, more cows, more cows. We have gone down the road. I mean, people talk about, oh, factory farming is ahead of us. The large intensive dairy sector is essentially that now. It's the equivalent of the battery hen. That's, that's what that's the fantasy that was peddled to them by Chagas and other mm. people, and they bought it hook, line, and sinker. 
They pulled out every ditch. They pulled out every square inch. Of and they borrowed. The they borrowed every penny they could on the and back of that future. And they went to the hilt, friend. Mm. The money, the money that was pumped into concrete and and facilities mm. and undercutting. I mean, there's people out there not even talking to each other anymore in communities because one guy went out there and waved the checkbook and tried to swipe land from under this one, that one, and the other one without so much as a as a consideration of any description about family relationships, even neighbours. Well, you know, it was, it was just an almost obscene... What was a, gre- was a greed, Willie? Is, is that the point you're, you're making? Absolute, absolute, total and utter yes. greed, and we and, and a, just and just if I could just again play devil's advocate to you, I mean, you you spoke there about the average income from dairy farming, and it's considerably. You said about what about one hundred and forty. But I mean, if if you if you borrowed huge huge sums of money, which many of them did, the payback mm-hmm. on that is incredible. You know, it's incredible. But first, I mean, reality. I mean, we're, we're responsible for our own decisions. Yeah. I mean, this was so obvious. There was people who were in the business. 30, 40 years, they had, they had good herds of cows, 100 cows, 150 cows back then, and they never increased because they could see through the, the, the smoke screen. They could see through the absolute fantasy that was being peddled. This is not going to last. It's, it's a three, four, five year, and then the arse falls out of it. It's the same as every other boom and bust. But was that bust. before the quota was, was taken away, well, was it? When the when the quotas are gone a while now, friends, yeah. gone a while now. But there was there was a reasonable, sustainable level of expansion. There was a reasonable, sustainable level of new entrants going to get into our, our convert. But it was a landslide. They couldn't even process the amount of milk that was being thrown at them in the summer. It was completely and utterly a no. There was no sense. There was no logic to it whatsoever. And the, the thing was been dangled in front of them that there was a 60 cent a litre, 70 cent a litre mm. milk price. Mm. Sure, look, they talked to the gold rush. It would never end. It was always going to end. It was flagged by the markets from a long, long way out. And they just refused, point blank, to even believe that it could happen. So, the, the, the environmental side of it, look, there's, there's arguments there, and I appreciate you're not a farmer, and a lot of it is technical, mm. but there's arguments out there, friend, that we should never have had a derogation in the first place. Mm. Never. It was it, a lot of these measures that we're talking that we're here about. Oh, we have this measure in place and that measure in place. I'm an active farmer, friend. I'm not farming at that level of intensity because I don't believe in it. But they have a, they have a there there are aspects of it, these measures, these so-called environmental measures. A lot of them are just box-ticking exercises on paper. In reality. And do you, you think? And do you think? And again, with your background, do you think it was inevitable that the derogation would be whittled away at? Then, I mean, w- w- I don't know. An, I don't know it's an inevitable friend, but it was. It should never have been set anything like where it was in the first place because well, it was completely unsustainable. Unsustainable, yeah. completely unsustainable. Not like we've we've had changes in weather and patterns. We've had the three four weeks of what is a glorious summer, but in the dairy sector. It's a disaster. Oh, my God. Someone must give us a grant from somewhere. They can't get over one month of a dry summer. But there's, there's people going about like the earth or the sky is falling down on top of their heads. It's, it's only happened for one reason, friends. They've gone too intensive. They've gone against nature almost. They've gone to the point where every square acre has to be blackened with slurry. Every time the cow goes out of it, 
the manure spreader is in a thrown out more chemical nitrogen. Every ditch is paired to the butt. There isn't, you could walk some of these farms today, and I do because we do a bit of hunting and stuff over the winter. You could walk some of these farms today, friend, and they're almost blue, the colour, the rich, the, 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 the grass has grown to such a level. You'll hardly see an animal on it in the line of wildlife. You'll and hardly see a hare, a rabbit, you'll hardly see anything on it. But the, Willie, the, the animals have the, even moved out of it. Do, do you accept, though, that farmers were encouraged? into this situation and advise. I absolutely do. Yeah, I absolutely yeah. do. And Chocos should hold their hands up yeah. here and say, <laughs> they're as guilty as anyone else. Yeah. But Fran, it comes down to personal responsibility. You have to balance up and measure what you're going to do that suits you. And people bought a fantasy. They thought it would never end. Never. You know, there could be no end to the gravy train. Get more and more and more. More land, more cows, more land, more cows. And you're saying no, 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 we're, no, we're paying dividend on that is, is what you're saying to us. Sadly, I must leave it there, Willie, because I could talk to you for ages. But thank you so much for giving us that perspective on on the conversation this morning. Good to talk to you, Willie. Thank you. No problem, Fran. Thank Bye you. now. Thank uh, News and information is on the way. Tip today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie Welcome along to the second hour of Tip Today, 1800 A lot of people on to us following my... Uh, chat there with Willie coming up uh, to uh, news. And most people in agreement with him, uh, with the exception of one man who said he's talking through his you-know-what. Um, Mary says, uh, fair play to you, Willie. You're speaking the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but uh, the truth. And we have farmers who are over-the-top greedy. My neighbour can't get enough land. So what does he think of? And he goes on, then, uh, this lesson, Mary goes on to mention some other stuff there that I be best to stay away from. Um, well done to that man. Um, he told the full truth, Fran. Uh, the farmers are now calling bail bucks. Greed, greed, greed. Count the numbers of 23 and 22 monster tractors at about €150,000 each, not to mention the yuppie 4x4s. Cop on, farmers, says Mags. No sympathy for ye here. Well, again, my, you know, I keep having to repeat I'm, I'm not a farmer and I'm not from a farming background, but my understanding... And, and maybe some of our listeners can help us where this is concerned. My understanding that some of those monstrous dinosaur-like machines that we're seeing on the road um, would largely be owned by agricultural contractors. Is, is that not the case, as opposed to individual farmers? That's my understanding anyway. But maybe you can help me on that. 083-311-3311. Sean says not all farmers are looking out for handouts, and I'm sick of that bloody narrative. Um, somebody else saying it's pathetic uh, to listen to the IFA uh, rep on the show. If uh, they want to make progress negotiating any deals, they need to sit down as a united front, divide and conquer. That's where they are at present. Um, immature, childish behaviour, name-calling. Other farmers won't solve it. Wake up and show a bit of common sense. And Of course, that's uh, making reference to our conversation around the fact that the ICMSA attended that uh, meeting with uh, the minister and officials and the IFA were outside protesting and then there was ugly scenes where the IFA, well some 
members of the IFA were catcalling and calling the ICMSA, uh, people coming out, um, scabs and one thing and another. Anyway, onto something different. Back to school season. One of the most expensive times of the year for parents with the cost of living making it even more difficult for parents to cut down on overall costs, especially when it comes to the dreaded school uniform. Well, Irish Times journalist, podcaster and mum of seven, Jen Hogan joins me now. She's been writing about this in the Times. Good morning to you, Jen. Good morning, Fran. Lovely to talk to you. And since I spoke to you last, I have to add the fact that indeed you are a <laughs> podcaster now. And many congratulations to you. Will you tell us about the podcast, first of all, Jen? Oh, thanks, Fran. Yes, I am taking over from Amy Huberman as the the new host of the Mamia and Me podcast with uh, Ferality. So um, we'll be chatting to different, uh, people every month about different aspects of parenthood, their experiences, well-known faces and experts and having the chats and crack about that. I'm really looking forward to that. We um, recorded the first, um, a special episode down at Electric Picnic with, with tips, uh, Una Healy, and we yeah. and, and had great crack. It was uh, both my first time and Una's first time on Electric Picnic, so that was really good fun. And we will have our episodes going out now soon. So exciting times, busy times, but exciting oh, that's times brilliant. too. And, and, I mean, you're a great communicator anyway, but that transition from print to actual broadcasting, was, was that difficult for you, Jen? Oh, do you know, I suppose I love doing radio and TV when I yeah. get the opportunity. So I'm very excited to, to get a chance to be the other side of the mic and be the host this time. So, yeah, no, it'll be good. It'll, what, what'll be, I suppose, a challenge will be remembering to, to flip to flip a little bit and to, to be the person <laughs> who's, uh, <laughs> you know, when you have opinions and when you're used to being the person who shares the opinions, go on, now hold them back there and now hold your horses, Jen. <laughs> uh, well, well... Uh, yeah, well, I hope you don't do that too much because we love we like your uh, opinions. <laughs> you, you, you've been writing about the school uniforms, uh, Jen, and you have lovely memories of your own school uniforms back in the day. You didn't like your uniform very much, I'm gathering. Not much. I'm sure my old prince, and I would love to see it described as snot green in the Irish. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, talk about, I mean, it was just, I suppose it was your traditional long A-line green skirt. Uh, we had a shirt and tie and jumper and the heavy gabardine. Well, cumbersome gabardine rather than heavy gab- gabardine. You know, I was earlier on, I was trying to describe what that was to somebody. It's kind of like a trench coat. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the gabardine. like a trench coat, sure. only it's, it's heavier. It's not waterproof. It has no heat in it, it gets in the way, it's awkward and you, have, you were only allowed to wear that to school um, and then it was just it was, it was impractical for things like cycling or impractical on bad weather days, I suppose like a lot of girls would find with their uniforms, particularly girls who are expected to wear skirts as their uniform course, yeah. as part of their uniform, so it was just, it, and it was awful, like the colour of it was awful, and the shirt and tie, like I'm a woman, I had no expectation whatsoever for me to wear a <laughs> shirt and tie, unless I feel I would like to wear it, but yes. you know, it's not part of office attire or anything anymore so it was it was just yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> and, and you, you, you spoke about the shorts for PE as well you, <laughs> you you don't have pleasant memories of that either it was like you know the knicker shorts you know so just that's the only well you probably don't know the knicker shorts from the knicker I'm, shorts I'm denying the that I'm denying that completely Jen yeah <laughs> The girls of old will know the knicker shorts. So they were like they were really the sort of thing. In fairness, you know, when you're going through adolescence, you can be very body conscious and sure. very, you know, very. You, I suppose, feel a little bit awkward already getting used to having to get changed in school, changing rooms, and these are all things that are quite different to primary school. And then you have these knicker shorts, and of course, if you had your period, it was even worse because yeah. you know they're 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 not very forgiving. They're they're not they're not revealing. They're not loose. They're like just 
bet on to you and they're not the sort of thing that you would feel very comfortable with at any time really but especially um, when you had your period so the, the whole uniform was just so girl unfriendly and it was a girl's school so it was kind of, of and, amusing but and, we just got on with it and you're saying I mean in the times that we live in particularly post-Covid mm. where things are a lot more informal now we haven't learned anything from the past or indeed from Covid where the uniform is concerned Jen is that the point you're making? Yeah, I mean, one of the great things, and there's, you know, there's very little positive I have to say about COVID, but sure. maybe one of the positive things around COVID was as a consequence maybe of some schools' expectations that fresh uniforms were provided every day or fresh tracksuits were provided. At the beginning, when people weren't sure about the rules around COVID or how it might be passed on and there was worry it would be passed on through clothes. And, and certainly, I know a lot of parents I spoke to would have got notes from schools asking, that uh, children change their uniform every day. So mm. schools loosen the rules. Some schools loosen the rules around what children were allowed to wear. And if there was a track suit or a school track that they were allowed to wear that in or maybe alternate with different bottoms, you know, just to, so that they could provide that. Those rules stayed fairly relaxed throughout COVID, even when we kind of realised, you know, washing clothes every day wasn't that, wasn't uh, an essential part of it, of managing COVID. Um, they, they kind of stayed fairly relaxed. But now that COVID is over and restrictions are gone and we're all, schools are operating pretty much exactly as they were beforehand, we've reverted back a lot to the the old tracksuit or the old uniform mm. of old. And any schools that maybe had a tracksuit and a former uniform where they were allowed to alternate with it, they're back now to the very strict uniform days. And I'm really just calling it a question, what's the point of that? Because when you look at it within the workplace, adults have become an awful lot less formal sure. in, in how they dress. You know, again, the expectation beforehand, now that so many people work from home, there isn't the same expectation to be in a suit or a shirt and tie or so quite so formally dressed when you're in the office as, as there might have been before. We've got very relaxed, you know, we, we're used to Zoom, you know. We're not even sure people are wearing trousers when they're in meetings, never mind, you know, a shirt and tie. So, depending on your camera angle. Uh, but but the, whole, the whole idea that we've allowed adults to move on and be more comfortable in what they're wearing, but we're still expecting kids to dress like adults of old. It seems a little bit unfair. Um, it, it seems even a bit like it's not very inclusive either. When we look, you know, at children, maybe it might have additional needs or it might be prone to maybe sensory overwhelm and those itchy, scratchy jumpers and the kind of collars on the shirts and the trousers and the ties. There probably is a positive to it though, Jen, in some way because, I mean, if you relax it completely and allow kids to wear whatever they want to wear, there will be a hierarchy there because some Mm. kids could afford all the latest brands and the latest fashion while others might sort of struggle with that. Is that that fair comment? I think, um, I mean, certainly the idea, like the idea of a tracksuit. If we if we maintain something, some kind of generic track that the worst was maybe a certain standard. That might, and I say standard, I don't even mean necessarily standard. I mean as. I start, reduce the pressure maybe on parents to live up to things like brands and stuff which yeah. might happen if we had no uniform at all and I, I know there are arguments made for no uniform at all but, but this might be the happy medium where we have children in comfortable clothes but perhaps we're not so insistent we could reduce the cost which we should be doing anyway there was a 2017 circular and, and schools were supposed to take measures to around crested uniforms yeah. for example to make sure that um, and parents could buy jumpers or crested uniform pieces in any, any store and then then um, sew on the crest or iron on the crest if they, as needed um, if, if crest existed in schools. And th- that sort of thing would have reduced the cost for parents. But that hasn't happened. Like, schools have not brought that in across the board. But if we move to maybe some sort of generic track, that it would be comfortable. It would still be the same. We'd take away that kind of brand pressure that parents might feel to compete with the Joneses. And it's not even that they want to compete with the Joneses. They don't want their kids maybe getting a hard time 
or they don't want their children feeling under pressure. I can understand that, mm. but we, but I don't. I just don't think shirt and tie and trousers or or skirt are suitable items of clothing to expect children to spend or to learn in. I'm not sure how it offers any advantage there. Um, if anything, it offers a kind of disadvantage of kids not being comfortable in what they're they're working in. And then when we even come to the likes of state exams, a lot of schools will expect their leading cert students to still wear uniforms. Then. Do they? I didn't realise that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it seems to be mixed across. Yeah. It's kind of mixed. Some schools are... Uh, they're okay about with leading third students and they'll say there's an exception made for them but perhaps for junior third students while those students are still very much part of the school they're they're expected to wear their uniform that you're leaving third whether they're the most important exams of yeah. their young lives you know whether it's junior third leaves it and we can say all we want but it's just an exam to those kids going through it at the time it's the most important thing that's going on in their lives and to not have them comfortable i, I can't see the benefit to it and like I said, with, with the leaving cert, it's sometimes a bit more of a mixed bag. There'll be some schools who say you can do it in your own clothes, others who'll insist on uniform. But with junior cert, it tends to be um, more often that kids are expected to wear their uniform. So it's just having to wear mm. having to wear such formal, uncomfortable clothes. Uh, and is there any appetite, Jen, from the powers that be to put in a directive about this and to, to deal with this in some way? Sure. Well, since we can't get on top of the L2017 circular, I, <laughs> I suppose it's very difficult. Like, I mean, this yeah. came from the department and schools haven't run with that. And, and schools are all kind of individual um, entities. They can, they can run with this if they so choose. What's interesting is since uh, the piece was published was the number of school of teachers and the number of parents who've got in touch to say, why, why can't common sense prevail here? Like, why do children need mm. to be in slacks and trousers and skirts? And, you know, parents of girls feeling incredibly frustrated around the skirts and the restrictions and, and what they're wearing. And the boys as well, like how they're running and playing. And even the girls, the specific shoes, even having to wear very specific shoes that are not very conducive to yeah. playing in the playground or, you know, running and skipping and, and, and doing all the things that kids should be doing. So there is, I think there's an appetite for change amongst parents. I haven't heard from, actually, I don't know if I've heard from a single parent that I would like to stick with my shirt and tie for my child. Um, that doesn't, that's not to say they don't exist. I'm sure they do, just the responses that I have heard. Um, largely, there is an appetite for change, not necessarily a complete move away from uniform. There is there is comfort in the familiar and the mm. not having to think mm. about what are they going to wear the next day and everybody being the same and, and not feeling that pressure to provide the latest that brands, even though there'd be others who'd argue, well, what about I did, um, children being uh, celebrated as individuals and, you know, looking like them and being sure. them and, yeah. and stuff like that. So there's arguments both sides of it. But there's certainly an appetite for a move towards um, more child-friendly. Well, you, you've, you've ignited the conversation anyway, that's uh, for sure. <laughs> Jen, it's always a pleasure and best of luck with the bye, podcast. Bye, and thank you so much. Thank, thank you. Bye-bye you. to you now. That's uh, Jen Hogan speaking to us there. 1800-938-007. How do you feel about that, particularly parents out there? Would you like to see a move away from the very formal uniform into something as Jen described uh, there, something like a, a, a tracksuit-based uh, uniform? 83 Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecone, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecone, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie One of our listeners says on WhatsApp, uh, Fran Michal Martin is wondering about uh, whether or not uh, Fianna Fáil will go into government with uh, Sinn Féin. What about the other way around? Will Sinn Féin go in with uh, Fianna Fáil? Do you know? I think they probably would. Um, 
um, one of our listeners on to say, we here at uh, Nina Needs It's A&E are completely amazed at how Micheál Martin avoided uh, the questioning from Fran this morning about the trolley figures in UHL. He spoke about South Tip Hospital and uh, their favourite word, capacity. This is unacceptable and we are urging everybody to email, phone, write to their local politicians and uh, tell them uh, that the people of the Midwest deserve better. And that's into us on 083 311 A listener says, Fran Willie spoke about farmers earning an average, well, he was talking about dairy farmers specifically, uh, an average of 140k last year. He never spoke about the costs rocking through the roof. Well, I did make that point to him. Uh, listener goes on to say, we are now at uh, producing milk at cost price at the moment. So the 100 cow man uh, now will be gone in five years' time. We'll be like New Zealand, a dairy farm, every 40 miles. Now, there's history being made in Rockwell College today. Our reporter, Alison Highland, is there for us. Good morning to Ellie. Yeah, good morning, Fran. I'm here in the residence hall this morning in Rockwell College on a very beautiful Tuesday morning, it has to be said. And I'm delighted to say that Rockwell College is now making history because for the first time in its history, it's now taking in female boarders, which is a great, I think, step forward, I think, for the college and a great example, I think, to other schools as well. And here to tell us more about, I'm here by a number of people, but we'll talk first to Principal of Rockwell College, Audrey O'Byrne. Audrey, thanks for having me this morning. Great to talk to you. It's lovely to be here. Tell me, when did all this start, the decision to take in female boarders? Because, you know, as we know, there was always female students here, but they would have been taken in by host families um, locally. So when was the decision made to take in boarders here? Well, I suppose the conversation has been going on for quite some time. As long as we've had girls boarding with host families, we have been looking at how we can bring them in as full students, full residential boarders into Rockwell College. But it's about eight years ago now since we started making plans for it. Um, we had hoped to launch this a number of years ago. The uh, COVID pandemic interrupted our plans in that regard. But thankfully, we were able to resurrect those plans. And this year, the first residential girls have joined us in Shanahan Hall as full boarders. So how many do you, girls do you have them boarding with you? 20 of our girls are boarding with us here on site. And this year, because it's the first year and because our girls have such a great rapport and relationship with their host families, we did allow them the option of staying on with host families if they wished. And eight of our girls have elected to do that for this year. Right. So how many boarders do you have then all together, girls and boys included here? In total, we've just under 100 across the two genders here in Shanahan Hall. That's a lot of a lot of uh, personalities to look after, I can imagine. It is, but I suppose the, the thing that makes Rockwell College different is that yeah. because we have the full day structure, you know, we have 500 students here for 12 hours a day anyway. Yeah. So that in itself uh, is, is a different dynamic in comparison to other schools. So managing the boarding element of it uh, isn't so much on top of that. Okay. I know what's interesting as well is Rockwell is the first Catholic school to co-ed board. That's really interesting. That's right. Uh, the Church of Ireland schools have a long tradition of co-educational boarding and uh, many famous schools around the country, um, Methody in, in North um, Wesley College, um, uh, Bandon Grammar, uh, Villiers, all co-ed boarding schools. But Rockwell College is the only Catholic one. And I think that's really just... Uh, tradition more than anything else um, because of the population dynamic being more in favour of Catholics than Protestants historically in Ireland um, Catholic schools tended to be single sex whereas Protestant schools because of the smaller population tended to be co-educational right from the onset. Do you see a lot of other schools then following your lead here? 
Uh, I think other schools really are looking at co-ed in general, whether it is day schools or not. So, for example, you take a school like um, St. Charlotte St. Jume in Galway, they've gone co-educational this year for their first years and for their TYs. Mm. So schools that uh, were traditionally single sex are branching out in, into co-ed uh, in the Catholic domain. Yeah. Um, and there are very good reasons for it educationally, socially, developmentally. It's, it's the best, better move. Can I ask, can I be bold and ask your personal opinion on that? Do you think it's better? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I really do. I think that when you're looking at boys and girls getting educated together, um, you're looking at a dynamic in the classroom where each of them rubs off the other. And, you know, the, the girls can motivate the boys to, to do better because they tend to be more focused. And uh, boys can sometimes bring an air of a more, you know, relaxed long term yeah. planning, I think, to the girls. Um, and, and I think it works really, really well together. I think one of our girls a couple of years ago put it best when she said that they don't put up with each other's nonsense during the course of the, yeah. of the school. So I do. I came from a single sex education. I got a, a great education um, in the Convent of Mercy and Care. But uh, I feel that in this day and age, I think co-education is the way forward. Bear in mind, too, that most of our national schools are yeah, co-ed, especially in, in rural areas. Yeah. Tell me as well, I know there's been a huge focus on emotional health and emotional well-being and wellness in secondary schools. And thank God for it. I'm sure Rockwell is no different. Absolutely. And I think our full day and our boarding is part of that as well, because we have teachers and non-teaching staff keeping an eye on the pupils throughout their day, throughout a 12-hour day or a 24-hour day in, in residence. And it means that we can keep an eye on wellness outside of just a classroom setting, which yeah. can be quite formal. So on the pitches, in the ref, uh, on the corridors, in the dorms, we get to see how pupils are interacting. We get to see their happiness or, or, or otherwise we get to step in with them in, a, in an informal and very effective manner. So I think by, be, by being able to take it outside of the classroom in Rockwell, we're able to enhance that sense of wellness. Okay, thanks Audrey, lovely to talk to you. And I will come back to you, but I want to talk to some of the girls who are the boarders here at the school. Uh, Aoife, I might start with you. Aoife O'Farrell, she's a Leaving Cert student. Um, you, I know you've always been in Rockwell, but this is the first year you've been boarding. How have you been finding it? I've been finding it very beneficial to me. Um, I used to board in a house family and it just takes out all the travel. I get extra time to do hobbies and study and it's much more beneficial to me. Great. And uh, there's other uh, students here, Patricia and um, Christina as well. They're both students from Spain and you're here as well. I know you, you've started in fifth year. Uh, if I start with you, Patricia, how have you been finding it? Uh, I'm finding it like, uh, very good. It's a very good experience for me since I've, I've, I'm coming from Spain and I really liked it. I really like yeah. it being born. I'm sure it's tough though coming from Spain and coming into a whole different culture, a whole different country and then boarding in school as well. But has that been made very easy for you? Yeah, it's true. It's, it's a different culture. And but I'm actually I'm getting very used to it because uh, everyone here in Ireland is like very nice and the school so like boarding, it's true that maybe well I haven't been um, along to, like so much so much time um um uh, like out of my house, yeah. but uh, I think it's like very easy because like here everyone's like helping each other and it's it's very easy for me to be here like um, comfortable. And I think a big reason why you're, you're here as well is because of your dad, because your dad was a student here, wasn't he? Uh, yes, he was a student here uh, 30 years ago. And we just, uh, well, my dad loved it here. 
and he told me that I would have like a very, very good experience here at Brockwell, and I just trusted him, and I'm finding out that it's absolutely true. I'm having a very good time. Well, we're delighted to have you in TIP then as well. What, what are your favourite subjects? Uh, right now, home economics and geography. Lovely. Yeah. And the bowel Christina is here as well. Poor old Christina got into trouble because her room was messy this morning. <laughs> so how, how are you finding boarding other than not having the time to clean the room? I mean, it's actually really fun. I'm finding it really entertaining, and I've been making a lot of friends. Thanks, so, because I'm talking with like all these people. I always forget to uh, tidy up my room. So, <laughs> well, if that's the worst thing you could do, we'll we'll let you off with it. But I know there was a bit of conflict over the color of the room. Tell me what color the room is. Oh, oh, well, the color is lilac, but the all the corridors are pink. Like, are you happy with the pink? Uh, I rather I don't know how that color honestly, <laughs> because it's not even a, because it's not even a pretty pink. But it's like a Barbie pink. Is that how you described it? No, because a a Barbie pink is like more bright. You know right. I mean? It's more pastel, but you're not happy with it. I wouldn't say so. Are you calling for a recount of the votes in the pink? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I do like the colors of the rooms inside, which are lilac. Yeah, but the ones in the car are kind of ugly. Oh, God. Well, look, we'll, we'll have to revisit that, I think, and we'll, have, we'll maybe take a picture and see what the listeners think. Aoife, if I can come back to you, you're a Leaving Cert student now this year. Does that put a little bit of added pressure on you, or how are you feeling heading into Leaving Cert? Um, I wouldn't say it's adding any pressure to me. I think boarding on campus has eased pressure a bit. Has it? But obviously, going into Leaving Cert, there is pressure. Yeah. Um, but I'm really looking forward to this year and I really think that on-campus boarding will benefit my leaving cert. What's your plan then? What would you like to do after? I'm not completely sure yet. I'm yeah. thinking of going down a business route. Very good. What's your favourite subject in school? My favourite subject would probably be maths at the moment. Wow, well done. So you're getting on fine with the boarding? I'm getting on very well with the boarding. You're enjoying it? Yes. Well done, girls. Lovely to talk to you. Also here is Michael Doyle, who's residence manager here at Rockwell. Michael, I know you've been kind of piloting this uh, for a few years. Mind McGinty, actually. We must mention McGinty because McGinty is the resident dog here. Uh, beautiful back dog. We might start with McGinty, actually. When did McGinty arrive? McGinty arrived last year. We brought him in as a therapy dog. Um, he's very good in the evenings for the girls. In particular, they take him for a walk. Anybody who's not feeling well, they rub him coming in the door. He feels good and they feel good. That's a great idea. Is it a unique aspect? It is. Um, the boarders, I think, in a poll about two years ago, 85, 90% of them looked for a resident dog, but then it brought the added problems of who's going to mind the dog on weekends, boarders weekends, who's going to take him for a walk, who's going to take him to the toilet. So it has actually worked itself out. Um, he comes in the morning, he's dropped in here at 8 o'clock. I'd say they fight over him, do they? No, they, actually, they all, McGinty actually doesn't take 21 of them, particularly just right. goes up, for, looks for his rubs. And treats, but he doesn't get treats, unfortunately. Tell me, do you know what? I'm, I'm mad to ask you. Is there a huge difference? As residence manager, you're dealing with these kids all day. Is there a big difference having boy boarders and girl boarders? How do you manage the two? Um, well, they're in completely separate corridors. The girls get in. They have a fob to get in. We have um, keypads on the door, change locks um, on a regular basis, change the codes. Um, they keep to their own areas, but then down on the corridor here like they mix the integrate um, they're definitely far more content girls are probably a little bit more emotional than boys but it's an we love the drama Michael <laughs> that's what it is we just love the old drama 
Okay, and, and I won't comment. <laughs> but, but was it difficult to kind of implement, or was it just you had the space here anyway? So it was just you know making that um, workable for the girls, um, separating it then from the boys. Was it an easy process, or was it a bit more difficult than you thought it was going to be? It was very easy actually, um, because um, we have been doing it for the last eight years, where we've brought in leaving certs and junior certs and kids doing Cambridge exams for roughly about a month, five weeks, and. It worked a treat. So it, that was kind of the pilot project for us, really? Correct. That was the yeah. pilot project. And now, like, it's actually working a treat. Uh, it's just gone seamlessly for us. And yeah. in terms of the colour, um, <laughs> don't mind the girls. The girls themselves were given choice of colours, so they picked the Barbie pink. Yeah, well, Christina's not happy about it anyway. <laughs> she wasn't here when they were picking colours. Now, I know the borders are from second year up to sixth year, and next year then there are plans to, to have the girls in from first year then. Are you expecting um, a lot of popularity, a lot of interest into it then of girls boarding here? We are. We've run a taster evening on August 23rd that was very successful, and we have a number of girls that were here on that evening who've already booked in. So we will have first year uh, girl boarders in next year. We hope to run another taster evening on October 27th uh, from 5 o'clock on Friday evening until 10 the following morning. It will include um, activities like kick, uh, what do you call it, foot golf, swimming, we'll have a barbecue, we'll have tag rugby in the morning, some basketball. So we have a number of um, kids who've already looked to book mm. in for that evening. So yes, we will have a number of firsters in next year. Our problem will be that um, we've only capacity for 29. That I reckon that will be full easily next year. So we'll have an overspill. That's a great sign. Yeah. What do you do then to keep them all entertained? Like over 100 different personalities, interests. How do you keep them all entertained then in the evening after the schoolwork is done? Well, we have a number of staff on here at night time and they have access to the all-weather pitches down below, to the gym. We run a swim for them on a Wednesday night and a Sunday morning after Mass. Um, kids, there's a lot of um, recreation rooms here in the residence. There's TV rooms. There's a kitchen downstairs uh, what I call a common kitchen. We have a separate kitchen upstairs for girls who like might want to be on their own if they're separate TV room. Yeah. There's a games room down below where you've got table tennis, pool, foot, um, football, and there are board games they can play if they wish. So look, they they take walks to talk to each other. Mm. Yeah. You also have the wardens operating. I know they're not called wardens, but at night time, just to, to make sure there's no crossing over. We have um, a waking dean, we have a walking dean and a sleeping dean. I think we're the only boarding school in Ireland with a walking dean. So that's just an extra level of security here. The place yeah. is locked, it's alarmed. Nobody can escape without the alarm going off. Yeah. Nobody can enter another corridor without an alarm going off. So look, it's just for our own sake, for a sense of security. Yeah, I hope that's not an alarm now, someone after crossing the hall. <laughs> no, I don't know. It's just a truck, just to be clear. Audrey, if we finish up with you then, um, I know you have an open evening as well coming up in the next couple of weeks. Tell us about that. That's right. Our open day is running on Saturday, September the 23rd from 10am. And that's an opportunity for parents of prospective day pupils and boarders to visit the school, to meet me and some of the other staff, uh, to walk the site and to see the boarding facilities and to meet some of our students as well. Our students yeah. are always really great ambassadors for Rockwell College. Always are. And I can't, you know, I remember when I was in school and I was talking to somebody about this before. We were never this. 
articulate and confident when we were teenagers. I mean, I, there's a lot said about teenagers and, and you know, maybe antisocial behaviour, but the teenagers I meet in schools across Tipperary, they're a credit to their parents and their teachers. They're incredible. Yeah, we're very proud of them. I mean, our, our pupils will be the ones taking the tours on Saturday or on Saturday week. Our pupils will be the ones that parents want to talk to because they know it's authentic. Yeah. And you can see the pride that they have in the school when they're showing it around and when they're talking about their experience here. We're very fortunate to have them. Anyone who's looking to make contact with you on the open night or anything else, how can they do that? Check out our website, www.rockwellcollege.ie. There'll be details there for registering for the Taster Night on October 27th and also details about registering for Open Day if you wish to register or you can just turn up on the day on Saturday the 23rd at 10am. Oh, thanks so much for having me, everybody. Been a great morning here at Rockwell, Fran. I'm only sorry that I can't board myself, but for myself <laughs> and McGinty, it's back to you in studio. Thanks, Ali. Do come back to us. That's our own Alison Highland uh, there, live from uh, the wonderful Rockwell College uh, today on what is a very historic time there. Indeed, I love Christine. I thought she was terrific. And it's a real indication of the confidence uh, that young people have now that in front of the school principal she could be critical about the colour scheme. I just think that's brilliant. Uh, Councillor Shamie Morris was on to us um, following my interview with uh, the Taunishta this morning and Shamie says, I can't believe that the Taunishta has just brushed off the incredible suffering being inflicted uh, by over 200 unfortunate uh, people languishing on trolleys at UHL in the last two days, for example. He should get off his ivory tower and go to the emergency departments there to see himself. Uh, but of course he won't, preferring to spin on truths. Now this is Shamey's words. And he says, uh, our health services are being dragged down by our shocking emergency uh, services. Oh, wait, three, three, double one, double three, uh, double one. David Doran was on to say, well done on the interview with the Tornishta. Um, how Michal Martin could in any way be comfortable with how people are being treated in uh, UHL uh, says a lot about Fianna Fáil. Uh, fair play to the farmers and their dignified protest at the horse and jockey. Uh, speaking of farmers, another listener says to us on text, farmers put the food on our tables and we the consumers should support our farmers by uh, buying Irish produce, the produce and not the stuff coming in on aeroplanes every day. I don't think you'd have much disagreement on that. Um, somebody else saying, irrespective of who owns the machinery, Fran, it has to be paid for. They don't get it for nothing should we go back to the horse and cart. And that's um, answering the uh, listener who was critical of these huge uh, machines on the road and wondering how they're being paid for and, and that might put forward the theory that it's probably agricultural contractors that owns uh, those um, huge, huge machines. But then again, I'm depending on you to help me out where farming is concerned. 083 If it matters to you, it matters to us. Call TIP today on 1-800-938-007. TIP FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie I really hope that uh, Patrick Keelty uh, can live up to all of the hype um, over the last uh, few weeks because every time you open a newspaper listen to a, a national radio station there's talk about uh, the brand new host of 
the Late Late Show. A lot of scrutiny on that show on this coming uh, Friday night. I don't envy him, that's for sure. Ireland's biggest coffee morning for hospice, together with uh, Bewley's, um, is the biggest and uh, the main annual fundraiser indeed for hospice care and uh, the date is the 21st of September and fundraising will happen on that day for North Tipperary Hospice and uh, Eileen Kennedy is Secretary of North Tipperary Hospice and joins me now. Eileen, good morning to you. Good morning, friend. And great to talk to you today. Eileen, before I talk about the fundraiser, can you just fill us in on the work done by North Tipperary Hospice because I know it's immense. Absolutely, and and I suppose since we've come back out from COVID and you're yeah. you've supported us all through COVID with our online system, but uh, unfortunately our, the numbers have absolutely exploded with people being diagnosed with short cancers and unusual cancers, and we provide um, we support the palliative care team to provide the in-home care service, which uh, where people can die with dignity in their own homes. We provide the equipment and we fund part of the nursing. And we also provide our cancer care centres in Surehaven and Thurles and Suvenus and where people come for counselling, support, kindness and just to walk along with them on the journey. The organisation costs half a million to run and uh, we don't get any very little state funding. So uh, it's the goodness of the people of North Tipperary and that's why the coffee morning, this is the 32nd Bewley's coffee morning and 43 million has been raised in the in the in the 32 years with the 26 hospices. And the good news is that all the money collected actually stays on the ground and together for hospice make that happen. And that's very important uh, indeed. It's interesting and it's a bit of a coincidence because I had a conversation last night, it was in uh, Wexford, um, with a gentleman and he was making that very point about he, he sees a huge rise in the number of people with cancer and particularly unusual cancers. And that's your experience as well, Ali. Absolutely, yeah. People maybe get three weeks, six weeks and haven't been sick or maybe we were diagnosed at the start of COVID and didn't get going with treatment in time. Yeah. And it, there's yeah. an awful lot of stress out there. We find that the clients are, all our counsellors are flat out in both centres. And, uh, you know, we find it's difficult for people and young people, young mothers. And we were delighted to start a children's programme this year, Climb, to help the young people cope with their mummies and daddy's illness and... Uh, we we ran a course in May, and of the eight parents, um, six of them are, are not going to make it. So. My God. And, and yeah. I'm really glad you're making that point because it's very much holistic care, isn't it? It's not just for the person with the, the condition. It's it's for the whole family, isn't Absolutely, it? Absolutely, the whole family. And that's the piece that's very important. The medical model is very good at and given the medical news, but the human care is left out. And then the human connection, we look after the patient, the person themselves, plus all the family members. And it's very important that we walk in humanity and kindness with them. There's a great fondness, though, Eileen, for what you do, because, of course, almost every family touched by cancer in, in, in some way. I mean, people are delighted to support you, are they not? Absolutely, absolutely. We have, we never, every year we say, how are we going to collect a half million? But the people of North Tipperary never let it down. And uh, actually this year the Hospice Hero has been reintroduced. Yes. Would you tell and, us about uh, that, Arlene? I will indeed. Yeah. And we're delighted because our nominee this year was Anthony Burke from Ross Grey. Anthony is a young man whose mum died when he was 22 and uh, got the service. We looked after the mum at home and they were delighted. And Anthony has given 17 years service and unfortunately has been diagnosed himself My and God. has battled on. But you might be interested. His main therapy is music. He's is a great indeed? man. For, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Great man for the guitar and the songs oh, and, and uh, fundraising. He's thrown himself into the organisation. And um, on, the, on the 2nd of August, we were invited to Dublin to Bewley to put on a lunch and the Gleasons, Brendan and Donald, the mm. son, are, are from Thorless, of course, their, their ancestors. 
So uh, they gave great time to, uh, we had a beautiful lunch and Anthony's daughter Erin was 21 on the day and her favourite actor was Donald. So the joy that I saw that day makes it all worthwhile. Right, and these are superstars of the movies and making themselves available, Aline. Isn't that fantastic? Absolutely, and, and actually yeah. you talked about the late late. The first time I saw Brendan on the late late, he was crying because his mum and dad had been in the casualty unit as Seamus Morris was saying there in, in Dublin and St. Francis Hospice and Rahini came and looked after both of them. And the Gleasons are marvellous, and I'd just like to thank them for their dedication and passion to the hospice. Isn't it great? You speak about Anthony Burke there, uh, the hospice hero. You must meet amazing people and people with amazing stories and of course how they deal with their, what, what life has thrown them as well Eileen. Absolutely and I'm a counsellor myself so it's, it's very relevant that we listen and we, we're there in kindness. It's all about kindness and walking with people because the fear that lands in a house when even the word cancer is mentioned is very hard so it's lovely to be able to help and the people in our Tipperary have been outstanding and I'd just like to thank all our volunteers the whole year round. They're marvellous to us. I know that you don't want to make this about you, but could I ask you, because I'm always intrigued, how can you listen to such heartbreak, Eileen, and, and go home? Do you know what I mean? How how do you do that? Yeah, it's actually it's actually it's a privilege and a blessing. Is because, it? Yes, yeah. absolutely. And and I suppose everybody else doesn't want to talk about the cancer, but if you can actually sit as a counsellor and talk about the cancer with people and help them with their fear, it's it's a huge blessing. I've I've helped so many over the I'm involved for the last fourteen years. And I, and I have helped so many that I'm very proud of the work we do and just to be able to sit there with people because what happens is the family gets upset and they don't talk. They're trying to mind one another and the poor person in the middle has nowhere to actually talk about the actual fear and the dying bit and all that. So it's actually wonderful that we can create that space to be able to do that. Mm, and are you always amazed at people's resilience and their... Absolutely. and, yeah. and uh, How they I deal think, with this. Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah. I think the medical system, we've been talking about the environment and all the, this morning there of Michael Michal Martin, but mm. they really should look at the, the hospice organisation, the resilience, and the, every year the whole 26 groups never fail to raise funds and bring that humanity to people. And I think it needs to be funded better from national government. I, I wish you were the one talking to me, Hall Martin, this morning. Yeah. Um, you have a super host this year as well. We have indeed. Uh, we're delighted. Mary Hogan from our crony. It's, a, it's a, Again, it's an award that Julie's presented on the 2nd of August. Um, it's for the person who is really committed and dedicated. And Mary has ran 20 years of hospice for us, uh, coffee mornings, and she's ready to roll next, next week in, in our crony. And Mary's a wonderful community woman. She's the heart of the community in our crony, and I'd just like to thank her, and we were delighted to be able to nominate her for the award. So just for clarity then, how can people help with the fundraising on the 21st? Great. We have over 50 coffee mornings organised. Uh, we have over 30 in the Nina area, and I've given Emma all the details there. Mm. I think she's going to put them up. Yes. Paddy Heffernan is the contact for the Nina area. And we have all the local parishes, our crony, Burstcane, Clockjordan, Ballina, Newtown, Ballinatlock, Attached Cottage, Ballycommon, Laura, Hayes, Pope and Pocon, Nina Savies, uh, Carey's Garage, Sue Ryder, Ashlawn, Ballina, Reed de Maher and Burgess, Carrick Hill, Bird Hill, and Stevie Costas and Suvenus Cancer Support Centre. And also we have in Eamon Gray and Louise and Tebsmore and Centra are putting on the, a large coffee morn for us. We've Ross Gray, the Lions Club Community Centre, and we have the Torless uh, County Bar in Liberty Square. And also many companies can actually do it. They've all, they're going to run it in-house in and they're going to give us the funds. 
great. I, yeah, I've given the numbers there to Emma. Of course, so and em- Emma will have all of those details if anybody wants to make contact on 1800 938 007. I hope you have a, a fantastic fundraiser, Eileen. Um, can, can I ask you a question? Um, and it's just really, you know, I am intrigued to know this because you've been there with people towards the end of life and as they pass and... Have you come to any conclusions about life and death and all of that, Eileen, from your experience? Well, I suppose life is very fragile and fear is the biggest thing they have. Is and it? if you can help to allay their fears and just that they go in peace and know that they were so loved in this world and that their family will be looked after, that's a huge thing for them, that we look after their family when they're gone. So that's that's the bereavement yeah. piece. Because I, I, I spoke to a lady... Um, just a few months ago with uh, terminal cancer and again she made that point to me that it's not really the passing uh, uh, towards the end it's it's about the family and will they be okay or yeah. it could be financial exactly. issues for the family and all of these kind of things Exactly I've, I've helped young mothers to write letters for their children for their you know their 21st or their weddings or whatever it's going to be coming up and, Oh Lord Yeah it, but it's a privilege to be able to do it because you really feel you're, you, you know that they're going to die happy then to know that that piece is done for them you know and I'd just like to thank our staff as well. We've marvellous Anna Ryan, Bridget Ryan and Catherine Harty and all our all our therapists. We have our uh, reflexologists and our, our uh, counsellors. They put Trojan work in and at the moment we're we're at capacity to keep up with it. So the funding is very important to uh, roll in on the on the twenty first for us. All right. Well, on behalf of everybody, can I thank you and your colleagues, Eileen, for the amazing work you do. Thanks so much for coming on with me. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Fran, and thank, thank you, you because you're you're um, you're the heart of the community in Tipperary and you really support us all the time. And I'd just like to thank everybody and Jason Dial, the managing director of Bewley's, of course. 32 years is a marvellous record. And uh, without them, we wouldn't be half the, we wouldn't have half the money we have. So, And thanks to you, friend, for, oh, as I said, being the vice for us. Uh, you're very kind uh, and you're always welcome. Thanks very much indeed, Eileen. Um, all right, the news and information's on the way. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Uh, welcome back to Tip Today. Now, as you know, Ellie was out and about for us uh, today, historic uh, day. In Rockwell College, they are now accepting young girls as uh, boarders there for the first uh, time. But Joel was on to us to say, and he's making an interesting point. He says, time is precious with your children. Uh, Never mind sending them to boarding school. They grow up far too fast. And I probably would agree with uh, Joel. I couldn't uh, imagine um, sending the kids to boarding school. But there you go. It suits some people and it suits some kids as well, I suppose, depending. Um, <laughs> happy birthday, Francis. Have a wonderful... Thank you very much indeed for that. Um, Martina was on to say, Eileen, you have me in tears here. Keep up the brilliant work and the very best of luck with it indeed. And that's Eileen who spoke to us about her work with North Tipperary Hospice. For every problem, there's a solution. Dear Phil, on Tip Today with Phil Prendergast. Morning, Phil. Good morning, Fran. How are you today? Very good. Good, yeah. good. I'm delighted. What is the weather like out, out there? Because they locked me away here, you see, for a few hours and I it, don't get to see Tell you what it is this morning. It's autumnal. Is it? Beautiful. Right. A little bit sharp. Okay. So I suppose it's going to be more comfortable weather for a lot of people. Yes, because we can't deal with heat. No, sure we, can. we can't deal with clammy. 
We can't deal with moist. We can't deal with seeing the mountains close. We can't deal with any of that. <laughs> I know. I was at a gig in uh, Wexford last night and for the first time ever, I looked like Christy Moore after the gig. Like, my shirt was ring, And that yeah. rarely would happen. Yeah. It was just intense heat. Well, I was at the gym yesterday and my shirt oh, also was ringing excuse after Excuse me. <laughs> excuse That's never something I'll get away with saying. I was at the gym. No, it just yeah, won't work. Yeah. <laughs> All right, then. The problems of the county, then. Let's go with letter number one, Phil. Dear Phil, my husband and I have been married for over 30 years and have a very happy relationship. A couple of weeks ago, my husband was very sick with a chest infection and was coughing and spluttering all night. So I went to the spare bedroom for a couple of nights until he recovered. The problem is... I loved it. I loved the peace and quiet. I got to read my book in peace. I put on my aromatherapy uh, diffuser, which my husband hates, and listened to sleep podcasts on nature noises. I had the best night's sleep of my life. I even started moving some things into the spare room, and I got lovely new sheets as well. The problem is, my husband has finally cleared his cough, and he's looking to come back. But I've been putting him off. I mentioned the idea of sleeping in separate rooms some nights, and he got very offended and felt that it was a bad sign for our marriage. The way I see it, there's nothing wrong with the marriage at all. And in fact, I think separate rooms makes things better because I'm not annoyed with him keeping me awake and I'm way more rested in the morning. But is he right, Phil? Is it a bad sign? Not at all. I just think there's a, a, a mismatch here in expectations. Like, she's getting a better sleep. He would probably get a better sleep. They're married 30 years. She's coming to that time in her life when she'll be kicking the juve off, pulling the juve on, night sweats, getting up, going to the loo, all the rest of it. That does disturb if you're sleeping in, in the same room as another person. And if you're sleeping in the same bed, I mean, it's, it really has an impact on the quality of their sleep. Mm. So there's there's huge advantages to having separate rooms um, because she can do what she likes to do. And if he doesn't like an, or, um, those atomizers, it, it would drive it would drive him crazy. There's, um, you know, the temperature changes as well in terms of, you know, his needs for, for heat might be different to hers. Course, now, I know yes. you can get duvets now that have different togs on each side of the bed and all that, but sure, you know. Now, I do think that maybe they need to discuss intimacy issues because it may be that that is what's bothering him. Mm. And I think if they they had some sort of an arrangement where there was an acknowledgement that going to a different room doesn't mean that the love has gone out of the marriage or the marriage is over. This is something that is working. And maybe she should just maybe go to the, the, the other room when he's gone asleep. Mm. Or maybe she should just go maybe a couple of nights a week. But you're saying talking about it. And yeah, they'll have to talk about it because yeah. I think the fact that he said there's... Um, he said he got very offended and he felt it was a bad sign for the marriage. Mm. It's not at all a bad sign for the marriage unless you want to, unless Make he's worried that, about suppose, an yeah. aspect of, you know, and the intimacy issue could be a thing for him that he doesn't really want to talk about. But, yeah. you know, so I think they need to have a chat. It's interesting that it was only when she moved out because of his coughing and spluttering that she realised the, the pleasure of being on her own in, in, in a room and but, reading I mean, and listening yeah. to podcasts. And it's It's been a thing, I suppose. Both of us haven't been nurses for for so many years. Um, night duty shifts and day shifts and people sleeping in the oh, day and course, people yes. sleeping in the night. Yeah. You you know, there's, there's a huge advantage to having the bed to yourself. Mm. And I think that 
that goes for both people, there is a huge advantage. Mm. It doesn't stop you doing anything else. And I think he might have a little concern because things are good between him and they seem to have a very good relationship. Yeah. But he, you know, and you know what? He might be feeling a little bit flattened as well after having such a serious and heavy cold. Hmm. So man, he might man be, flu, I suppose you're going to well, say. Well, do you know what? Some people do get it hard, I suppose. You know the kind of weather we've been having. There's a lot of people who had the old chest infections and that. So I think they need to sit down and have a chat. Yeah. And maybe she should ease off on moving the stuff into the other room. <laughs> I thought that was it, a little... And making it into a nest. Like, yeah. it's a little bit exclusifying it, herself yeah. altogether. You know, the next thing, he'll come in and find her all in pink. Lord <laughs> God. But anyway, yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't know what people might think about that. But right. but, but is that is that part of it? I mean, when you say what people might think, the optics of that, maybe that's sort of, you know... But who are, are you going to go and say, well, I, I actually don't go into the bedroom with, with my partner or am mm. I going to say something like that? Yes. It's it's not something that really would be... No, I'm just wondering about his concern about it that maybe that could be something around that. Could it? No? Yeah, oh, it they're in separate rooms. Well, you see, that again is... is so, like I mean, I think that's people's personal know, business. Do you know? Of course it is, yeah. And yeah. it's what works for people as well. And I mean, I, th- I think maybe she needs to tease it out a bit and maybe she should just... You know, I mean, if she's getting the room all nested up for herself. It could be kind of a. I think it's a done that, deal, yeah, isn't yeah, yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I think it's a done deal. He so better I'd get used say to it. He, he could be worried about that aspect of it. It was fine when he was ill yes. and needed to be asleep or awake or coughing or spluttering or whatever it was he was doing. But mm. um, yeah, I think she needed to, to kind of ease back on sort of I'm moving out. All right. I think if she had a, an aromatherapy diffuser, I think <laughs> some fellas would be throwing her out. Absolutely. <laughs> but, but there you go. Anyway, letter number two. Dear Phil, I'm worried about my daughter's relationship with her best friend. They're both 17 and have been friends since they were 12. At first, there was a little gang of them, but the others faded away over time. And now it seems to be just my daughter and her friend and nobody else. My concern is that this friend is quite possessive of my daughter. When she isn't working, she wants to spend every day with her and go out almost every weekend. My daughter started a new job this summer and made some new friends who invited her out after a few weeks. When the friend heard about this, she got very annoyed and didn't speak to her for a few days because she wasn't invited. The next time my daughter was invited out, the friend tagged along, but according to my daughter, she didn't speak to anyone and made the night very uncomfortable. These two have such a close relationship that uh, they even applied to the same college and they're due to start next week. They're also in shared accommodation. I was hoping this would be a time for my daughter to branch out, make some new friends, move away from this very codependent relationship, but she sees nothing wrong with it. I'm wondering, what can I do? I think that um, her friend needs to be to realise that they're not a couple Mm. Um, and her friend could be very much lacking in confidence I'd say that could be part of it you know Um, like she doesn't have ownership of this girl and I can see the mother's concern but like they do get on very very well and I suppose they're very well matched but it could be like you know where somebody is very outgoing and the other person is completely not you know so um, I think there's very high expectations of the, the relationship continuing as it was but nothing stays the same I mean everything evolves so it's not it's not uh, you know I think this is a time for new opportunities and her friends should probably 
think about doing something different. If they can't be together day and night, um, year in, year out. Of course, yeah. You know, so I don't think it's healthy. I think maybe there's a comfort zone for her friend, but she definitely seems to be lacking in confidence. I mean, going out on a night with other people and then becoming mute and kind of sulking is not a good look for either her or her friend. And I would be afraid that the the new range of friends they would have would kind of see that there's an exclusivity with, with the the girl that's very clingy. Um, and the, it might just become problematic. She should have a chat with her about the fact that they need to have separate friends, they need to do different things, and it doesn't make a difference to their friendship. But, you know, there, there's... And, and I would also think that when they do go to college, there, there will always be counsellors in mm. the college. And, you know, she might need to go and have a chat with her about some sort of direction she can take. But, um, you know, the fact that... You know, she didn't speak to anyone when she went out and it made the night very uncomfortable. And, um, you know, they they have a very close relationship, but, like, they are not a couple. Yeah, you th- the college would have been an opportunity for them to maybe dilute that sort exactly. of dependency exactly. just but, a, a little bit. But now yeah. they're, they're sharing the same college and, and sharing accommodation. Well. You see, I think that's very... It's, it's probably too much and yeah. it would be... It would be better if they had some time where you can, you know, extend your range of friends. You can extend your range of, you know, I mean, I think that they, they if they think about it and if this girl and her mom thinks about it, they need to think about doing different things in her free time instead of being that we'll go for coffee now or yes. we'll go for a milkshake or we'll do whatever. Um you know, that maybe they should have separate things. And also there's a lot of college activities that might, one might do knowing the other won't do it. Okay. So, but okay, you yeah. know, so I you mean... you get a bit of natural space there. A bit then. of natural yeah. space. And I think it's very, very necessary because when you're very... It, there can be a sense of ownership with friendships yes, sometimes. Of course, yeah. And and if it's anything else and her friend is gay and deciding that they're a couple, that again is something that would have to be teased out. So Wow, it's, that it's, puts a whole other dynamic Well, it does, it, it? but it's yeah. always a fact that when somebody is very dependent, it could be, but it, it may not yes. be at all. And what about the mum describing the relationship that was codependent? You know, yeah, so that they were depending on each other. Each, each other, yeah. yeah. Well, it suggests that her her daughter doesn't see anything too much wrong with yeah. it. But like when she did try and extend her range of friends because she got a job working in the summer, um, her friend didn't like it. Mm. But instead of and and the girl then did invite her out with them and she sulked all night. So, like, yeah, but the mum's question to you, Phil, is what can I do? And I'm wondering, uh, she has to tread softly here, has she? Oh, she does have to tread softly, yep. Yeah, she can't be seen to, but all she can say to her is, look, you need to have some separate interests. Um, it's not all about, you know, staying friends and nurturing the friendship. The friendship is there, it's been there a long time. Mm. So, um, I don't think the mother should overstate things here. She should just let things flow for a while. But if there's this kind of ownership with the other girl, um, her daughter is going to see that too. Yeah, it's interesting. Because they're getting maturer all the time. Are friendships among women, are they stronger than men? Because I couldn't see men having that issue, you know, of it being so... Well, I don't think... You see, men are... (laughs) They're less emotional than women anyway. They don't, you know. I, I, I'll plead the fifth. On yeah, that. yeah. Well, you know, they're what they are, and yeah. and women can. Women are subject to all sorts of 
cycles and crack. It's just, you know, I mean, you can be in the jigs for two weeks and yeah. then you could be in great form. And look, it's it's just something I think that they need to tease out themselves. Okay. Mum shouldn't worry over much about it. Um, there is, like she did, let her daughter apply to the same college and all the rest of it. It's not let want they want it mm. or whatever. But yeah, I think mum should, uh, you know, she should maybe... It's ex- it's really important to expand their circle of friends. Yeah, well, it might sort of fix itself in in, in college, oh, as you might. say, with the um, expansion of friendships. Yeah, and various but it does seem to have become a bit obsessive, you know. All right, the third one then, dear Phil, my friend is getting married next April, so she has really revved up uh, preparations for her big day. We're part of a big group of friends, about nine of us, and uh, the bride has said that she couldn't pick just a couple of bridesmaids between us, so she wants us all to be bridesmaids. I think it's a lovely idea, even if we all will look a bit crowded in the church and in uh, pictures. But the thing is, the bride says that because she has so many bridesmaids, she just won't be able to afford dresses for all of us. So she's asked us to purchase our own dresses. She's given given us a few options to choose from and says if there's a consensus between us, uh, she's happy to go with whatever. The problem is, a few of us are a bit put out that we have to buy our own dresses. It will add to the cost of the day because I'm thinking if I'm a bridesmaid, I need to put uh, more money in the envelope and it also means that we won't be able to get our hair and makeup done as a gift from the bride. And uh, this uh, listener goes on to say she has said that we can do that ourselves too, but uh, with pre-approved hairstyles and then turn up ready to go at her house the morning of the wedding. I feel we're all being cheated out of the nice part of being a bridesmaid and by her trying to save some money, she's piling the cost on us. Uh, there are two other girls who have expressed uh, their annoyance uh, with it as well. I'm not sure what the others think. Should we all get together and see if we all feel the same or do we just suck it up? Definitely mm. not sucking it up, actually. <laughs> this one sounds like a bit of a bridezilla, you know, yeah. where everything is about her and it's not. Um, they should have a meeting, actually. And they should. And nine bridesmaids is a ridiculous it's amount. Crazy, isn't it? And um, absolutely. And the very like, I mean, you're talking the costs for getting a dress that you're not ever probably going to wear again. Yeah. Because bridesmaids dresses are bridesmaidsy. And what, what kind of money are we talking? I mean, is it, sure. how, how how long is a Look, piece of string? You, you could probably get a very nice dress. But you're not going to get a, a bridesmaid quality dress for, I suppose, at the very minimum, I would say, probably €100. Euro. Mm. Um, and they can go up all the way. They right. can go up all the way. So it can be very bad. So I would say that cost is going to be a huge factor on this. It is the bride's big day. Um, one thing I was a little confused about, she said, it means we won't be able to get our hair and makeup done as a gift from the bride. Why would the bride be paying for someone else's hair and makeup? Actually, that, that's not a. a that's thing, not a it? thing. Okay. No. Well, it's right. not. I didn't know it was a thing. No. Well, I. I, I, know, I stand I corrected. If, say, if right. they can write into us now and tell us that we're all wrong. Right. right. Is it, maybe listeners can help us with that. Oh eight three three double one double three double one. Has that become a thing that the the bride pays for the the hair and beauty and stuff? I I would have imagined that if someone agrees to be a bridesmaid, but I think when there's someone not being able to make up their mind I think that perhaps she might want to say to them lads this is going to be so expensive and all the rest of it and I'm just going to pick two and I'm going to pick, put them all in a hat and just pick two bridesmaids out or one bridesmaid mm. she doesn't need a big she'll be like you know um, anyway 
I think it would be just ridiculous to have that many bridesmaids. The hair and the makeup thing, I, I think maybe, you know, there's a huge cost with wedding pack packages and everything is packaged now as a kind of a part of a wedding. But there are aspects of weddings now that are kind of gone so ridiculous that like there's people buying a gift for the bridesmaid and, you know, you give this much money and you do this much. And now I, you know, people want to give money and that's fine. And the day of getting 69 kettles is gone, like for people, which is so I believe, yeah. fortunate. Yeah. yeah. But um, wedding packages are, they're marketed to extract as much money as possible and they have monetized every aspect of it. So this girl, I think, might have been throwing out, uh, uh, you know, throwing it out there that I can't decide. And by the way, this will be the cost. And by the way, you'll have to do that and you'll have to do that and you'll have to do this. I think that probably the bride is realising, oh, gee, you know, nine bridesmaids would be ridiculous. They're not going to have nine best men. And no, that's that's for certain, I would imagine. But I, I'm just adding up the cost here in my head. I mean, they probably would have to give at least €250 Euro of a kind of a, a gift, would 300, they? 300, yeah, yeah, 300. yeah, would, yeah. And the 100 for the dress at the basic cost. Yeah, and, and then hair, hair and, and makeup is going to be another thing. And, and accommodation. If it's a, if, and, and because the bride is insisting that it's a specific style. Now, oh, yeah, I mean, that'd I be very that. bad if it was me because what style can I have except Spike? Are not spike. spike. Spike is good, but but it, oh, that's what she means that there's a a particular hairstyle. Yeah, that she, so she probably wants them all with up styles or something, which again is that that won't oh, suit everybody. God. So I, I, honest to God, the idea of seeing nine bridesmaids walking in after a bride is just the idea of it is. It, it it doesn't flow for me, yes. you know, and I think as well that it would kind of ridicule the the wedding to an extent. Um, uh, Martina was on to say, I was a bridesmaid twice, and yes, my hair and makeup were paid for, but uh, uh, but I did my own makeup in in the end. Yeah, I thought, uh, does the uh, makeup person not go to the house now? Or is it, you see, it depends that? what works for people, course, Fran. Yeah, you know, course. and a lot of people are very, very, very expert at putting on their own makeup now because there's tu tutorials you can look at, and it tells you where to put the blush and the highlighter and all the rest of it. All you need to do is be able to see what's blusher and what's highlighter. Because if you put them on the wrong way around, <laughs> you will look like a feckin' corpse. <laughs> I can imagine somebody else saying, yes, the bride pays for the hair and makeup. I got married uh, 18 years ago and I paid for it all. So there you go. It seems to be a bit... Yeah, of, I, didn't, I didn't know that was a, a thing, but I married anyway. so long now that I just cannot remember. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. But I mean, it does. I mean... You know, somebody said me to me before that being asked to, to be a guest at a wedding now is like getting a summons in the door. Oh, but yeah. to, be, to be asked to be bridesmaid uh, must be... <clears throat> the idea that I think she might have asked for, that I can't make up my mind and they should now sit down and say, listen, nine is going to be ridiculous. <clears throat> so would you consider one or two put the names in a hat and you're just thinking please don't let me come out of that. Please, please, You know, please because there's, there's work to be done as well on there. Wouldn't it now it's enjoyable? Weddings are very yeah. enjoyable for a lot of people but they're not enjoyable for people that have to be on show holding yourself in. You know yourself. It's just one of those things that are just you could do without holding it. Holding like. yourself in. Ah, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know. It's a top table job and in the view of everyone else. Yes, but anyway, I know. I, a, it's not simple. This yeah. is not simple. But, you know, 
if she thinks about it and what it might look like and if they're, they're, I, they can be very elegant dresses and sheets and stuff like that and they can look absolutely gorgeous and if they're them big balloon dresses then you're going to be talking about where are they all going to the, fit. The one bit of advice that I would be patronising enough to give is that in the event of there being entertainment there at the thing, I've come across this so many times, make sure the bridesmaids are not out the back having a fag and a drink when they should be getting people out onto the dance floor and making sure the night flows extremely well. I don't know how many times I came across that playing for weddings that people won't go out on the floor because the bridesmaids are outside and they're not bothering with everybody. They have a job to do, haven't they? They have a job, but you know what, um, Fran, I think I think the way we did weddings, now this is going to be a little bit controversial, but I think how weddings were done during the COVID, that they were great. There, my son was at a wedding and smaller there was, you mean Phil, there was 14 yeah, sitting around yeah, yeah, the table yeah. and they had just such a lovely lovely wedding because the, the nature of the beast at the time was you can't have this money and you can't yeah. have that money and it saved them a fortune and people were relieved but I'm not trying to downdo the, the wedding business mm. and people making their living from, from providing wedding services and that but now there's another so many options and really I suppose there's there's a protocol to be followed uh, in terms of how the bride is treated um, what the bridesmaids do and when they're supposed to assist her with yes. you know her veil and fixing things and, and the flowers right and you know helping her if she has one of those big hoopy dresses to get in and out of the bathroom and you, you know it's like it, it's there's a lot of yeah. brunt work involved in it I can tell you but it's um, it's like the idea that she would think that nine bridesmaids is okay yeah. and unless you so know ditch at least eight I would ditch eight yeah, <laughs> for certain alright Phil it's always a pleasure thanks very much uh, indeed we'll give you Thank an opportunity you to have your views on at least some of those letters as well because we'll have them on our social media platforms a little later on it's 11.28 right now back in just a moment Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecone, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecone, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Now, welcome back. Some reaction already to uh, some of our letters to Dear Phil. This one says, Fran, the first letter... Uh, I had a serious uh, operation two years ago. When I came home, I had to sleep on my own, so my partner had to move in to the other room. It's now two years on, and our relationship is better than ever. We're together 12 years. The sex is better, and both of us gets a great night's sleep. So there you go. That's uh, uh, making reference and responding to the first letter that came in to Phil. By the way, as I say, they're up on social media if you want to make comment uh, on them. Uh, yes, Fran, a bride pays for hair, makeup, dress, shoes, tan, sometimes matching necklace. Um, I've been a bridesmaid three times and the bride gets a say on the hairstyle and the dress. Okay, well, there you go. Uh, Patrick was on to say, Fran, the bride does pay for the hair and makeup. Good God. Legal discussion on Tip Today is brought to you in association with Lynch Solicitors Clan Mel on the web at lynchsolicitors.ie and at divorceinireland.com. Bet you didn't know that, John Lynch. <laughs> Bet you didn't know that. Was that was that in your no, legal no. training? No, 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 no. I never covered that module. 
<laughs> is it all part of the marriage contract? I wonder. It's I a, think people should num- don't mind the hairdo. They should have prenups. Yeah, I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> I love the way you get in your own little dynamic yeah. in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's great, yeah. isn't it? I, I, I'm sort of careful nowadays. I'm so careful about what you say about things. But the poor old parents would be paying for the bloody thing, I suppose. Oh, that's, uh, that doesn't happen. Anymore. Does that not happen anymore? Not much. No. Oh, I'm thanks not. be to God. Are you sure? <laughs> well. I, I don't know. You'll have to do a box box. <laughs> Is that true, though? Are, are the parents... Not as much. No, not as much. I, oh, the last great. three weddings I've been at, it was the kids that paid for it. Was it? And they determine who comes and who doesn't and etc. Yeah. No. God, modern, modern... That's great news. Yeah, I was doing, news. doing my sums and <laughs> what it might cost me You've into my You've been saving age. for a while, have you? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, on a much more serious topic, yes. you want to talk to us about advanced health care directives, uh, yeah. John. What what are they? For what aren't they? Well, yeah. first of all, they're legal. Uh, what I mean by that is they've been legalised under the assisted decision-making legislation, which came in in 2015 and is operational as and from this year. So I suppose the, the most important thing to know is that they they now have a validity that they didn't have prior to this. And it's been suggested for quite a number of years that it's something that was missing in that kind of set that I often talk about when you're looking at forward planning. And as you know, I'm a big fan of forward planning, be it prenups or otherwise. Yeah, sure. But the, the advanced healthcare directors, when, as I often say to people, when people came in to me 30 years ago, at that stage, you know, they come in, and they make the will and you wouldn't think of anything else and or as in there was nothing else on the landscape at that stage 40 years ago now you have uh well you've had since 96 you've had the um the not the advanced healthcare director sorry you've had the enduring power of attorney and the enduring power of attorney is again a forward planning document which basically says that if you lose capacity that you can nominate people who will step into your shoes and and look after your personal affairs and and or your business affairs so that's and again it's it's a what if scenario what if i lose capacity what's going to happen and you pre-plan it now the advanced healthcare director, and obviously the will is pre-planning, but pre-planning for the most inevitable thing that's going to happen to all of us, i.e., that you're going to pass on to the next life if you believe that there is a next life. But that's a pre-planning document as well. But the advanced healthcare directive um, is another pre-planning document, and it's another pre-planning document again based on whether or not you have capacity. So the the key element to it is that if you reach a point by reason of your health, mental health or physical health, that you're no longer able to make a decision about your health care options, then you have a document, a reference document, that you pre-decide as if you were there, in other words, and you can appoint somebody called a health care representative and so in other words and you don't have to by the way you can just have the document that sets out precisely what it is either what what care you want or what care you don't want so it there's two sides to it you could decide that you don't and I'll 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 try and outline some of the Mm. things in a minute but the general the general thrust of this document is that it's 
it's pre-planning a situation for you. So you're saying, okay, and there's a reference that people can, there's a document that people can refer to that is going to say what you would have said had you been able to say it, if you know what I mean. Yes. So again, pre-planning might never happen because you may be very well capable of saying precisely what you want to happen. Mm. Even if you were very ill. Even if you were very ill. And kind of, the really, the central point and the central focus of all this is a change that they've made to the whole question of having capacity to make a decision. And that's been, and because I've been doing a lot of work on this uh, over the last couple of, couple of months now, because I'm trying to fashion a document or fashion a series of documents that will help people and help particularly my job in helping people make these documents and make these pre-planned so Like a template of, like of a template, sorts, is yeah, it? Like a template yeah. of sorts. Yeah. Which, of course, as you know, in order to create a template, you need to have some understanding of what's, what are the principles behind it. Mm. And you'd, you'd be surprised at how complex it can be. But anyway, that's for... But one of the central things of it, or one of the central elements of it, is this whole principle of capacity and what exactly does that mean? Mm. What does it mean that somebody doesn't have the ability or capacity to make a decision? And they've actually, in the legislation that they introduced, they've actually given you some guidance on it, which is helpful. And what it does is, it, and, and funny because it's, not funny isn't the wrong word, but it's interesting because, you know, often when you have legal principles, they don't, you know, if it's a court scenario, they don't give you guiding principles as such, if you know what I mean. You have kind of certain guidance or guidelines that you follow as a judge, for example. But these are guidelines that you're supposed to follow if you're going to be the person appointed, either as an attorney under an enduring power of attorney or as a, a person, a healthcare representative. So these are kind of the ground rules that everybody needs to understand. And the, the, the thing about that is that if I'm going to say that I'm going to appoint you as my attorney, that of itself isn't going to be hugely helpful to you unless you know what the implications of that is mm. and do you, do you have any guidance? Mm. And the wishes. Yeah, and the wishes, and the wishes yeah. 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 And interestingly enough that you should mention the word wishes because that's central to the guidance that the guidelines that you're given. And I'm going to just give it to you as it is in the legislation yeah. and I've, as I've broken it down, it breaks down to, and you know the way they just love terminology in legislation and in law and in everything, actually even mechanics are good at it as well when you're looking into an engine, there's names for everything and you haven't a clue what they're talking about. But they have... The guidance that they're talking about, the relevant person in 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 the legislation is the person you're talking about, the person who who, who has or has not capacity to make a decision. So the very first principle is that you go on the basis, you think along the lines of what can I do to help this person make a decision, as opposed to saying, does this person have capacity or not? So your starting point is, what can I do to help them make this right. decision. So it's assistance. Not, yeah, it's yes. not the other way around. Okay. It's not, am I here to find out can you or can't you? Mm. You're here to help them make the decision. And if that's your guiding principle, there's a different, slightly different nuance 
thinking on that because you're going in to help them make the decision not going in to, to make a decision for mm. them as to whether they can or cannot make Very it good, yeah. and that's that's a huge thing and what it says from a legal point of view of course is they put it in legal terminology and they say presumption the presumption is a presumption of capacity it's a bit like and I hope it doesn't turn out like the presumption of, in, of innocence in the criminal code because you know my views on that mm. that it's very far removed sometimes from the, a presumption but I won't get onto that bandwagon mm. but the other thing then is so therefore the, the flip side of that is you got to do everything you can to help the person make the decision so whether it's to physically help them as in you know if they're not able to talk find ways of getting them to communicate what their what their thoughts are what or what their thinking is or whatever so you do everything possible if they're I mean the obvious one if they can't hear you properly you do everything possible to make sure they can so think like or you create the environment for them to help them communicate with you what do you mean by that then? and what I mean by that is I've, I I can remember saying to you at one stage, I remember it with my mother. Uh, my mother, if I spoke to my mother in the morning or if anybody spoke to my mother in the morning, she'd be fine. But if you spoke to her in the afternoon after a long day and she was tired, uh, she wouldn't be as capable of making a decision. So what I'm saying is, wow. you know, the environment, the fact that you can make a decision in the morning and can't make it in the afternoon mm. The important thing is you can make it in the morning. So do you see what I mean? There's I a do. subtle. It's very nuanced, isn't yeah, it? There's yeah, there's a subtle. You're trying to get them, help them to make the decision. You're not trying to say, put them in, you know, run them through a test and go, who's the president of Ireland? What day is of the week is it? What date is it? I'd mm. fail most of those. Yeah, but, me too. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. do you know what I mean? If you're running that kind of a test, whereas if you're actually just trying to find out, does somebody understand? what the decision is have they got do they understand the information about the decision and do they do they understand what the what what's the outcome what mm. is the decision they want to make and if they understand all those things you create the environment to make sure that they do and are capable that you're capable of ticking the box say yes they are capable of making that decision and the other thing by the way and i think this is a real um i'm going to say eye opener but it's a real obvious one but not so obvious if you turn back to what we were talking about and say that you're there to test, do the yes, no, tick the box, do they have capacity, do they not have capacity. A person who lacks the capacity, um, they don't lack it just because they make a decision that isn't a wise one. So in other words... Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, that is an interesting one because, you see, you and I might look to somebody and go... And you know the way you, you put on the blinkers, and I, I, I certainly would have had that blinker. I mean, I'm sure when I was in my 30s, I used to think, I used to think 50 was old. And then when I was in my 40s, I used to think 60 was old. Yes. And now that I'm in my 60s, I think maybe 90 <laughs> or 100 is old. But yes. it's, but it's yeah. so the minute you come in, depending on what your particular lens is, I mean, I, I've had this, I've, I've, I, there's the running joke in the office that I keep moving out the age. There used to be, I used to have a default in the office to say that if somebody is at 55 or over, you had to get a medical cert to say they were capable of making a will. <laughs> then I moved it to 65 <laughs> and over, and now it's at 85. <laughs> so was that in parallel with your own ageing? Exactly. Yes, exactly. I see, okay. But, but the point that I'm making on the unwise decision thing is, you arrive into somebody and 
you're being asked to be the arbiter as to whether they've got capacity or not. And they tell you that, actually, I want to leave all my money to the dog's home and they've got 15 children. And uh, you're going, no, that's not fair. I, no, no, I don't think they should be making that kind of a decision. That's totally and utterly the wrong approach because it's not the outcome of their capacity that you're looking at. And this sounds very technical, but oh, you're looking at... interesting. Yeah, yeah, but you're looking at, can they make the decision? Yeah. Assisting are, them to make Yeah, decision. are they able to yes. make the decision? Yes. No matter what that is, and I don't literally mean yeah, no yeah. But, but you know no I mean? matter how much you disagree with... Exactly, with no yeah, matter how yeah, much yeah. Oh, your underlying brain is going, oh, that, that sounds off the wall. I don't think they've got capacity. But the irony of it is you might have met them 20 years previously, you still might think... <laughs> You might be of a similar but view. But what if their decision is an indication of their lack of capacity? What? What if their decision is an indication of their lack of well, capacity? Then, well, then, well, then you're looking at a context. So you talked about, for example, their wishes, okay? Yes. And you talked about their preferences. So therefore, if you're looking at somebody, and I, I presume what you're saying to me is they make a decision that's so inconsistent with what they might have done yes. previously. Well, then you're looking at the other one, which is you look at their wills and preferences. In other words, you look at the way they've made decisions before. So it's holistic. Yeah. 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 So it's a holistic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Now you have that. I couldn't have picked a better word. Mm. But it is. It is a much a much more wider kind of a concept. Now, how it will pan out in practice is going to be very interesting, you know, because, I mean, on a practical level, I mean, uh, and again, I'm a, I only think to my own parents and I think to my mum and I think to if one of the siblings had asked her a question, she might have answered it one way and if I asked her the same question, she'd go another way. And so the question is, uh, one, one somebody might look at it and go, or no, let me rephrase that in the context we're talking about. In one instance, she might be talking to one of the siblings, and she, 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 because of their relationship, and you know, people have different relationships, parents and children. Sometimes it often, it can happen, often, no, I'll take it back that word, it can happen that there's a role reversal on the relationship between a parent and a child and suddenly the parent at their at an age where you're looking after them almost switch roles that you you're the parental and you know yeah, that kind of scenario yeah. and depending on the depending on the child sibling and I, I used to often come in with my mum and you know I could get a friend coming in and talk to her and because she didn't wasn't as sharp as she used to be they started talking to her as if she was an imbecile and I don't mean that No but I know it but, always annoyed me Yeah, yeah but annoyed. but what I'm saying to you is yeah. that you know again these are how does one deal with those things from a practical point of view and you there that's where the codes of conduct come in under the legislation they actually have they've done a huge amount of work on introducing codes of conduct to help people who are in the position where they have to deal with this kind of, does somebody have capacity or not? There are codes of conduct for all the different people. They call them interveners. I'm an intervener if I'm going to be involved in a situation like this. But there's codes of practice to help people. To, and there's training going on all over the HSE, for example. Yeah. Do. So it's, it's, really, it's a really fascinating area. Like yourself, I would question that questionnaire that might determine uh, capacity because, again, with my own father who had dementia, mm. they mm. used this questionnaire yeah. 
they didn't realise that the man was profoundly deaf all of his life. Yes. That even if they gave Correct. him that questionnaire 30 years ago, he'd find it hard to, to hear them properly and Correct. to understand. Yeah, exactly. And I, had, so, I, had, I had a client come into the office, well, and I, hopefully I have more than one, but a particular client that came into the office with somebody uh, in the office, and I wasn't in there at the time, um, although they say I'm rarely in there, but <laughs> the particular client I knew and exactly as you said I knew that they had a hearing difficulty mm. but I knew them for years and I you know there was never a problem uh, because of the fact that I knew that they had a hearing difficulty so obviously you do a bit of shouting and people mm. yeah. you know but are you right or whatever whatever but that's precisely the point that I'm making to you is that the checklist of obvious things that sometimes you'll miss and this was missed in my office they missed the fact that now they weren't fully deaf, but they were partially yeah, deaf. Yeah. And if you're partially deaf, you see, it can compromise your confidence in terms of responding to things and half understanding things. But the other, the other thing is, the other thing as well. There, there are other guidelines out there as well. And the other guidelines is, and a, a major one again along the same track as we're talking about. An intervention can only be should only be made where it's necessary. And this is the real interesting thing because you have to start by asking, is it necessary to actually do this? Do you have to go about intervening here? In other words, do you have to put it in some sort of an agreement or do you have to do an intervention at all? And that's the interesting thing. Because and who adjudicates that, John? I mean, who? Well, you see, if it's usually the person who wants to help, ironically. Right. So if you're in a situation like, you know, it's a bit like, and again, a situation that, that arose recently was somebody was in hospital. They'd had a stroke. They were in recovery. And the family came to me and asked me about whether should we put one of these new... They had heard it on the radio or read it somewhere yeah. or might even have read one of my blogs. I don't know. And they wanted to know, should could they or should they, rather than could they, should they put a, a one of these decision-making agreements into place because there, as I was saying to you previously, there's different levels of agreement that you can put in and the lowest level one is an assist. You give assistance to somebody to make decisions and the other one is you make decisions with them and the other one then is a court intervention. So it's level one, mm. level two, level three. But the point here is you don't go in at level one unless you have to. So in other words, you don't just... And the question they were asking, and I said, well, are they in recovery? Are they improving? Well, why are you putting in an assistance? Is, is there any issue with the hospital? Is there any issue in terms of... Is there anything that decision that requires immediate intervention? And if there isn't, you don't just put it in just for the sake of it. There has to be a decision that needs to be made. So, and it's decision, it's decision by decision. And that's the other element to this is that people may be capable of making one decision may not be capable of making another decision. So therefore, you could, in theory, and again, I say in theory, because, uh, you know, you could have multiple uh, decision-making agreements for different types of decisions. So you might have a decision-making agreement that would deal with, let's say they had uh, a family home, you might, have a, you might have an agreement on that, that they wouldn't be capable of making decisions uh, around whether it's rented, whether it's yes. sold or whatever, yeah. and you could have a decision-making agreement on that particular element of it. You could have another one. Uh, you you mightn't have one on their care arrangements, whether they stay at home or whether they don't. And this new, um, and again, just to to kind of reiterate what I was talking about, you know, if you lack capacity, 
you've got your endurance power of attorney. So if everything being equal and you've done the, you've done your pre-planning, okay, your will is going to eventually happen. Your enduring power of attorney will only happen if you lose capacity. Your assisted making agreement, which is another level of assistance, will only kick in again if you need assistance. Your joint decision making agreement will only kick in if you if you lack the capacity to do it. And again, it's important to come right back, as I say, to the cornerstone of all of this, which is, are you sure the person requires intervention? Is it necessary to intervene, number one? Number two, can they not, are, you know, have to assume, have you given them every possible help to make that, to decide whether Themselves, they can make that yes. decision or not? <clears throat> and when you're in, when the other kind of guiding and you, you can just imagine giving somebody this job that you're going to have to like I'm working through a kind of a checklist with things and the document is so big at the moment I'm going to have to reduce it down because you could make it overly complicated because at the heart of it at the heart of it you see the old way of doing it was acting the best interests of the of the person and it was kind of patriarchal kind mm -hmm. of you know, I will decide what's in your best interest. This is different. This is their best interest is for them to make the decision, not for you to make it. Please tell me there's a watchdog over there this is. because I'm, I, I'm almost suspicious of... No, yeah. no, and you're... Yeah. No, no, absolutely. No, there is. They have set up, and again, just as a, as a sideline here, the, there's two documents that I would recommend people to read. Obviously, I'll have one that I, I'll give people, but there's the uh, decision support service is this watchdog you're talking about. They've set up the decision support service and the decision support service has a huge amount of oversight on this. Very significant. And the fallback position is the court has oversight. So you you have judicial oversight and you have a, a body that is dedicated to checking to make sure that first of all the all the paperwork is in order second of all that people are appointed correctly third of all if there's any objections that they're they're listened to mm. fourth of all that there's reporting and and again this is the to a certain extent now a lot of this will be templated as you use in your word mm. a lot of the reporting will be templated so I don't want to be scaring people into the fact that the job is going to be so onerous yes. yeah. it's, it's, it's templated and of course, like everything else, the modern uh, approach now is it'll all be through a, an online course, portal. Yeah. But there will be standard forms there and the forms can be completed. So, yes, there is reporting. Yes, there is oversight. And thirdly, if somebody has an issue with somebody being appointed as an attorney, somebody being appointed as a joint decision maker, and, an, and I've moved away from the advanced healthcare directives for a second, and the... But if somebody has an issue with the representative or a decision of the representative, because the representative person, you when you when you do your advanced healthcare draft, and I said to you that I'd come back to the detail of it, mm. you can detail life-sustaining treatments, whether you want them or not, and what they are. So you might say, I don't want CPR, I don't want mechanical ventilation, I don't want artificial nutrition. You can deal with specific medical treatments, and you say, I want this treatment, I want that treatment. Now, Saying what you don't want is more um, uh, imperative than 
what you do want yeah. because what you do want may not be available or may, may you know for one reason or not but the other thing then is you can have pain management the big thing in terms of pain management to what extent you want pain management organ donation is the other one religious mm. beliefs is another one uh, don't yeah. You know, all there's those things. The only thing that concerns me is that there's some aspects of that that you couldn't fully make your mind up on until I'm you're in the, the midst in of the it. zone. Yeah. Correct. Now, that's a very good point. And one of the most important things, and funny because I kind of ran through this myself thinking what do I was do. And the thing is, one of the things that the, the other document that's, that, I was, that I've referred to, and actually I'm giving a series of talks, which would even, I'll plug it the next time I'm on radio, okay. in Clonmel, Thurlis and Nina, my colleagues are shooting. You're going Nina. on tour. I'm going on tour. <laughs> <laughs> but with the Irish Hospice Foundation. Oh, very good. Are, yes. And the Irish Hospice Foundation have this document, which is my advanced healthcare directive. If anybody goes onto the hospice website, they'll see this document. And it says, it uses the word three T's do I say that right anyway mm-hmm. there's no H so I can say mm-hmm. T so think talk and tell think about it talk to somebody about it and tell everybody about it that's what they're saying when you're talking about making advanced healthcare directives and very I, good you, 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 you will come back to some, will, some of the I details will, will, around will, that will, I'm sure John always good to talk to you thanks very much indeed John Lynch Lynch solicitors in Clanmel that's it for me Emma produced and uh, Stephen is on the way with the time tunnel on the lunchtime show I'll talk to you tomorrow look after yourselves won't you bye bye Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie.